need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger and we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man. Ego, egomania, uh, worship by the people down below, power is never satisfied, the need to go down in history is a mover and shaker, and ultimately to make everyone bend the knee worldwide and say yes sir, three bags full sir, is a dream of the psychopath and we must recognize it now because they are in charge. They are going to use the terror techniques shortly. They have many new words, they're good at making up words to camouflage their actions. Like rendition is where they just kidnap people and throw them off to some other government where they can get tortured. While we watch the sports and the soap operas and the comedy shows and listen to trivia as presented as news horror is already happening, has been happening now for some time, while we get entertained. Those who are growing up now, who are idealistic as most young people are, will have to face this. For those who are older and who understand that I'm sick of the response, well thank goodness the worst will happen when I'm dead. Well, maybe not, because it's, it's speeding up pretty quickly. And what a way to throw off your own responsibility onto the next generation. It's disgusting. It's disgusting as a response. The reason we are now at this stage is because the previous generation had the same attitude. When they, were, they had credit cards thrown at them, regardless of the credit rating, and they go on a binge and spending spree of debt while the big boys played their games and spun their web across the planet and everyone entertained themselves and gorged themselves on pastimes and that's passing the buck and what will they all do when the buck stops and you've brought children into a world where they have no say as to what they want to do and like every generation they, they do by, they learn by doing. The, the mistakes they make too, it's all, it's their choice to do so. That's how you learn anything, is by making the mistakes and they must be allowed to do all that. To be brought up in a world which is rigid and experts will monitor you from cradle to grave like a specimen. It's not human, that's not human. And we cannot leave it on their shoulders. Also, the younger generations have had more inoculations than any other previous generation. Again, a warfare tactic, which makes perfect sense. You don't want a well-educated, bright population on the go when you're making drastic changes in society. These things were discussed a long time ago. Thank you.
in warfare circles. We are in the midst of the final stage of this, and we have to push on now while we can. And there's a lot of good people out there, of all ages, who understand what we're talking about, and rather than feel helpless, they're starting to get involved and speaking out to the right people and we'll keep going as long as we can for myself and Hamish the dog it's good night and may your god or your gods go with you keep telling people not to put their faith in the lone hero who's going to come out of Hollywood and save everyone. Each person is their own champion and your first battle is with yourself. To be an individual will take some sacrifice be an individual will not win friends from the, the bulk of the populace. To be an individual, you might be very lonely. Can you stand loneliness? What's the other side of it? See, a person who really should be an individual and knows it themselves will often marry and do all the things and live miserably ever after to try and conform and to have those things he wants or she wants to have and yes he will be accepted and yes there will be a face put on in public but inside they're depressed that's why true individuality is not for everyone that's why there's always been a mass studies down through the ages have shown that the masses enjoy being the masses. Witch hunts don't have to be done by churches because the mass can turn on anyone they don't like. It's happened down through history. It's still happening today. The mass wants to be one the same as the elite want them to be one. The purpose of life is not to lose yourself, it's to find yourself, regardless of public opinion. Because life must be meaningful to you. Same techniques, same con, same ancient religion at the top. And for those who can catch on to it, do your homework, study, and don't be afraid to be different. From Hamish the dog and myself, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.
Not very far from Edgewood, in historic Frederick, Maryland, are the biological warfare laboratories. Here, men and women of science are doing basically the same type of work as in other government, university, and industrial laboratories, a combination of medical and public health research. While I was at Fort Detrick, I was able to follow partway through an experiment to determine the effectiveness of an agent. Volunteers are important to the testing picture. For many years, information has been needed on the effect of a biological warfare attack on man, so that we can have a better understanding of how to defend ourselves against it. The volunteers were a picked group. They had received psychiatric interviews to determine their maturity and reliability, as well as mental outlook. Medical histories and laboratory checks on the volunteers had been extremely stringent. Any history of a chronic disease, any allergic reaction or nervous disorder was a cause for rejection. Volunteers were given the opportunity to drop out and drop out at any drop out at any out at any time. I was to watch the progress of the experiment from the control room. The volunteers had been positioned in cubicles on the outside of the test sphere, a hollow steel ball 40 feet in diameter, in which a cloud of biological warfare agent can be generated. Through a series of controllable valves and a face mask, it was possible to expose a person in each cubicle to a measured volume of biological aerosol from the sphere. I said before I was able to follow part way through the experiment, the final part. As was expected, the volunteers were temporarily incapacitated but within a short time, they were up and around, completely recovered. They had the satisfaction of having played an important part in obtaining information, which would immediately be given to the public health service to bolster our defenses against disease. Research has led to many scientific findings beneficial to mankind, such as a perfected vaccine for controlling industrial anthrax, a usually fatal disease of cattle and sheep. Still another accomplishment, protective devices for the safe handling of disease-causing microorganisms and their harmful products. Just a few of the many byproducts of biological warfare research. All right, welcome to the BioSciWar TikTok TikTok Bio-Op Part 2. It's the TikTok-eration, the TikTok-eration apocalypse. It is the Bio-Sci-War uh, from TylerBloyer.com. 
We do these shows live. It's like a radio show, except for there's no FM or AM bands being broadcasted out. And it keeps me active. It keeps me uh, consistent with uh, sitting down and being able to produce the show, which I've been trying to kind of get into that groove for a while. Life happens, things come up. But as uh, I've been saying, everyone, you know, can have, should have, I don't want to imply what you should be doing, but uh, their own Wayne's World show, their own Tom Green show for those uh, millennials among us or whatever, you know, Gen X. I'm not sure exactly where the boundaries are with that. Uh, but yeah, today we're going to be continuing on with the BioSci War, as you can see. And we are now in part six or so of the BioSci War. I don't like to number things, although I've been reconsidering now with the series. Maybe there should be numbers that go along with these things or parts. But anyway, it's the TylerBloyer.com stream of consciousness show going back to about 2015 where I did the Creature of Control. And in that series, uh, I covered a lot of uh, eugenics, crypto eugenics, social Darwinism. And it was a shorter series, but it was my first kind of uh, adventure into producing content. And from there, we did the Liberty Lifestyle podcast and interviewed some interesting people. I needed to take some time and kind of reanalyze where I sat in the mix of things. And uh, since about a year and a half ago, got back into things in June of 2019. Uh, so, you know, almost a couple of years ago now. And then uh, restarted the BioSciWar series recently in uh, December of 2020. So uh, we're going to be covering more today about the Bitten book from Chris Newby, as well as going into the uh, Lyme disease uh, background and asking some questions and uncovering some artifacts and pulling out some different things. Really quick though, uh, that ball, now if you were watching the intro, I play the intros because it gives me a minute to check on the tech, get things going. I like the idea of jumping into an intro to kind of set the theme. Um, I guess first, let me kind of see what I want to mix in, how I want to mix this. Um, let's discuss Alan Watt. Now he was featured there in the beginning. It might not make sense in the BioSci War series why Alan Watt was featured right there. Well, recently on May or sorry, March 4th, uh, 2021, uh, Alan Watt passed and is no longer here with us, uh, in this dimension or this, uh, reality. Uh, but Mr. Watt was someone who influenced me heavily over the years. I have always appreciated his work and the way that he's stuck with um, recording uh, his take on things. And not only that, but really uncovering uh, the Fabian angle and Fabian socialism and going into figures like uh, Bertrand Russell and uh, uh, Sidney, uh, I'm having a... Sidney Webb and Beatrice Webb and uh, the people that around there that started the Fabian Society, which became like democracy, essentially. And democracy as we have it now, especially uh, socialist democracy, would be coming from the Fabian Society. And anyway, people that Alan Watt, going back to Alan Watt without getting caught up down in that uh, area, would would be someone who I would definitely recommend checking out uh, his work over the years at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, which I'll pull up here uh, on the site. It's a, it's a nice classic looking old internet site here and his work as far as for now, I don't know how things are going to be moving forward is available, you know, 
for free for download for you to archive for you to go through and listen to as you can see even just on the front page here there's a, a large voluminous amount of links and things to go check out um, but right up until the end and, and I'm not sure how he died I'm not exactly sure what happened there um, one of the channels you can check out that mirrors his work on YouTube because he wasn't someone who was going to go and upload to YouTube um, but yeah his work on like technocracy and linking together cybernetics and then linking that up to the current time and even predicting things that were going on now back in like 2008 uh, you could watch this video with Thomas Sheridan and the, and the the video he did last week announcing Alan Watts' death, that's where I first heard of it. Otherwise, I probably would have t touched on it last week on my show. Um, but right up until February 28th, Alan was producing work, and they weren't, like, recorded a long time ago and then broadcast at this time. He actually was doing the work. So, again, seems kind of sudden. He wasn't mentioning that he was, like, severely ill during that time. I'm not insinuating any kind of conspiracy, but, you know... He did uh, speak about them big boys at the top, as he would say, and him and Amos the dog. And I, I don't know if the dog was still around towards the end either. Hopefully the dog's fine. And again, it seemed kind of sudden. I, uh, Thomas hasn't insinuated anything was uh, out of the norm, and I have not looked into it much more beyond that. Now, in that opening book, so again, go check out his work, and I would I would recommend archiving it on your own lo local hard drive at least. A handful of the episodes because you can kind of get the idea and if you like Alan in his particular style then there's plenty of work of his available to go through and we're not there's not a lack of information essentially there's plenty of people that have exposed what's going on and Alan Watt being one of them uh, not Alan Watts with the S not the guy uh, the psycho not uh, he's got some good work too um, him I would not probably promote on my channel, and I think he does have more of a shady background, uh, Alan Watts. But Alan Watt, the guy uh, from Ireland who lived up in Canada, was uh, awesome, and I wanted to make sure and pay a little bit of a tribute to him here anyway. And then on the desk, I have, if you notice that ball they were going up, they were showing in that uh, Fort Detrick, Maryland little whatever that was, clip from back in the 50s, they mentioned a ball, and uh, they were talking about like a chamber, and I just recently got Annie Jacobson's book, Operation Paperclip. Uh, it's the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. I appreciate Annie Jacobson's work. I know she might not be going fully in-depth on every detail, but as far as like getting... Uh, a good handle on at least some of the information. I think it's a good place to start, and uh, I would need to go through this more before I say, you know, I highly recommend the book, but I think this book is more well-known of hers than the other one that I have gone through quite a bit of, The Pentagon's Brain, um, The Uncensored History of DARPA, America's Top Secret Military Research Agency. This book I've gone through quite a bit, and, and the kids have colored all over it, and it's been worn in my hands, and it's, you know, I'm kind of a nerd for that kind of information. But I think she's more well-known for this book, and let me see if I can get that where I want it. And I just wanted to read here from page 290 of Operation Paperclip from the Chemical Menace chapter from Annie Jacobson's book, Operation Paperclip. 
kind of to give a little context on that ball they were talking about there. Um, it says, it had been a year and a half since the Merck reporter on the biological weapon threat had been released. And an influx of congressional funding had transformed Camp Dietrich into a state-of-the-art bioweapons research and development facility. The Army purchased 545 acres of land adjacent to what had been called Area A and created a new area designated Area B. How, how creative. <laughs> Where some of Dietrich's first post-war field tests with crop dusters had sprayed and spray hoses would occur. During the war, dangerous pathogens like anthrax and X had been tested and cultured inside Dietrich's germ lab, and rudimentary wooden buildings covered in black tar paper and nicknamed the Black Maria by scientists. During the war, the industrial-sized boiler used for fermenting sat on the lawn outside of the germ lab. Now, given the scope of what planned, of work planned for the immediate future, Dietrich needed an aerosol chamber that was bigger and better than anything else like it in the world. The job of, of designing such a structure was assigned to a bacteriologist named Dr. Harold Batchelder. Dietrich's British counterparts at Portran Down had an excellent chamber of their own, but it only fit two or three mice. What Batchelder came up with was a monstrous spherical one million liter chamber called the eight ball, shaped like a giant golf ball and held upright by iron legs. The Chicago Bridge and Iron Works was, a, was commissioned to build the eight ball to specification that made it airtight and bombproof. The eight ball was to have portholes, doors and hatchways, and a steel wall of one and a half inches. So describing that ball, they called it the eight ball. Uh, that was that ball they were talking about in the beginning there. Inside the eight ball, airflow would simulate weather systems with scientists on the outside controlling temperatures on the inside within a range of 55 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit humidity could be controlled inside the eight ball to flow between 30 and 100%. This state-of-the-art environmental control would allow Dietrich scientists to understand how aerosolized biological agents would work at different altitudes in open air. The sphere would weigh more than 131 tons and would stand four stories tall. A car walk around the center would allow scientists to observe through portholes. The test subjects sitting inside as they were exposed to the world's deadliest germs. The Chicago Bridge and Works agreed to deliver on the date 1949. Again, reading for those who just joined, Operation Paperclip from Annie Jacobson's book regarding the eight ball, a giant test laboratory for aerosol agents where the um, people at Fort Detrick, Maryland were deploying germs and biological weapons on people and testing it out. And that we showed a clip of it in the beginning, so I'm just reading a little bit about that in the book here. With the chamber's design complete, Dr. Batchelder prepared to travel to Germany. There was an important scientist who was just now becoming available for an interview. This was a man who knew 
more than most anyone else in the world about biological weapons. He was particularly knowledgeable about weaponized bubonic plague. The physician was Dr. Kurt Blom, the former deputy surgeon general of the Third Reich. He had just been acquitted of war crimes at the Nuremberg doctor's trial. Now he was back at the on the paperclip list. The doctor's trial had been over 44 sorry over let me start again. The doctor's trial had been over over 442 day 42 days. It was October 2nd, 1947, and a message from Heidel, Heidelberg marked quote secret and confidential unquote arrived at the desk of the chief of the chemical corp and it read quote, available now for interrogation on biological warfare matters is Dr. Kurt Blom unquote. A meeting was arranged for November 10th, 1947 between Blom and Batchelor. Present alongside Dr. Batchelor were Dietrich doctors, Dr. Charles R. Phillips, a specialist in decentral or desterilization. I was going to say decentralization. No, a specialist in de desterilization, Dr. Donald W. Falconer, an explosive expert, and Dr. A. W. Gorelick, a dosage expert. Lieutenant R. W. Swanson represented the U.S. Navy, and Lieutenant Colonel Warren S. Leroy represented the Army's European Command Headquarters, and interpreter and stenographer were also present. Dr. Blum was told that, in advance, that everything discussed would be classified. Dr. Batchelor first spoke, setting a tone for all of the day affair. Quote, we had come to interview Dr. Blum personally as well as professionally, unquote, Batchelor said. Quote, we have friends in Germany, scientific friends, and this is an opportunity to use, uh, sorry, this is an opportunity for us to enjoy meeting uh, Dr. Blum and to discuss our various problems with him, unquote. To begin, Batchelor asked, quote, would it be possible for Dr. Blum to give us an overall picture of the information that he has, the nature of the world under discussion, unquote. Blum spoke in English, pausing on occasion for the interpreter to help him with the word, with a word, quote, in 1943, I received orders from Goring for all the research of biological warfare, unquote, Blum explained, quote, all the research for biological weapons, sorry, BWs, would fail, or would fall, under the name Cancer Research. <laughs> In German, Cancer Research had already started long before that, and I was already working all the time, but in order to keep this development secret, the Reich uh, discussed it. Dr. Blum, or disguised it, I'm sorry. Dr. Blum laid out the command structure for those involved in, let's see, how far did I plan to read this? Okay, so that's interesting. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit here to, well, anyway, this book, I'm gonna have to bring back into the scene anyway, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot more about Blom and Dietrich and them working together. And uh, this character, Eric Traub, comes up. Uh, there's some interesting individuals. 
pointed out in this book, and it's really just like a laundry list of the Operation Paperclip operation and uh, the Nazi scientists that were brought over to continue their biological weapons or what you just heard learned there, what we just learned, because I had not read that part yet, actually, I was kind of reading ahead, about uh, cancer research is actually biological weapons research. And if we can connect the dots further, just me leaping way ahead, I mean, the whole vaccine industry seems to be one big giant military operation. Um, and vaccines themselves are even the CDC being a, a part of a hierarchy of military. And so we see weaponized medical establishment, essentially. We see that the medical industry, the medical cartel, the medical technocracy now uh, across the world is actually uh, just really a, a militarized front for cancer research, weapons research, uh, infecting people with viruses and seeing how that reacts, uh, all in the name of off, uh, defensive warfare, of course, and all in the name of, of national security and science. So we'll come back to that book further down the road and uh, a lot more of the connections therein. And for now, uh, what I would like to touch on just a little bit today now is the brain model that I have built uh, over the years it has a bio war section now. And this brain model has been crafted from the ground up. There's been no importation of any other databases. This has been painstakingly really started from my research on the Federal Reserve System uh, quite some time ago. And now I will give credit to those that introduced me to the brain model. Uh, people like Richard Grove may even be uh, in the audience here today or at least tuning in for a little bit here and there, as I know he's a busy guy and only has one day off a week or so. Uh, but today, you know, enjoy your day off. And last night's lecture was great, by the way. But uh, the brain model here for tylerbloyer.com, you can find at tylerbloyer.com slash brain. And I kind of started around the Federal Reserve System. And then that moved more into my creature of control research, which I will be mixing back into the end of this series, by the way, on the bio war because the bio war is a uh, very psychological now we're covering a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff we're covering a lot of the actual biological weapons because i've kind of made a claim and i'm backing it up with a lot of backstory and context and detail here and we'll go over that here in a sec but uh from the creature of control you should be able to if i did this properly i'll do it now we'll do it live and we'll link the bio war underneath the creature and then i haven't populated everything but i'm going to start putting all the con the links and references on the left and then we'll have more context built out on the bottom here and then add into this i'm just making you aware that that exists also uh, i need to have like some kind of sound effect that goes along with my corrections because we have another exciting correction That's all, that's what I got for now. <laughs> uh, last week, I was kind of, you know, just parhesying, ranting on, and there was a... Uh, I said, you should go check out Dave McGowan's book, uh, Stranger Things. <laughs> so I totally, like, mixing... Now, you should check out Stranger Things as well. That's an interesting series. But Dave McGowan's book is called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. 
uh, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. And now, on the top of my head, I can't remember what we were bringing that up for, but I didn't want to correct myself. I also had this book floating around somewhere at one point, and I think it's one of those books that somebody borrowed, (laughs) and it's never been seen again. So, there we go. I've you know, made the correction. wasn't wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, now, <laughs> let's go on a little bit of a, a rant before we go into the rest of the episode here. Uh, no, really, just covering more of my show notes and going into the bio sci war, which you know I've sat idly by and kind of watched and learned and tried to figure out exactly what was going on since late 2019 when I was first hearing about the coronavirus outbreak in China, and I was starting to get tricklings of information about what was going on. Um, I had, at that point, was very kind of, you know, concerned, obviously, about mainly what I was talking about back then was people's reaction to the news and information, and how they would, you know, most likely hype it up into a situation that was overblown. And I was hearing from others this sort of thing right around that time of December 2019 and so you know once the information started coming out it wasn't a surprise but I wasn't sure myself how to take it like I wasn't should I be in a full body latex suit should I be wearing goggles should I be wearing a mask should I not go should I try to go out shopping late at night uh, when there aren't any when no one else is around (laughs) like you know, I didn't know for sure, and I and I still don't have a hundred percent of the answers of what you know somebody's reaction to the situation should be, and I don't. I think you know we're even getting a lot of mixed information about that, as far as that goes. But what I have noticed is, you know, obviously there's the people that aren't going to think, don't want to think, you know, probably never will think for themselves, and are just going to listen to the experts, listen to the scientists listen to the medical establishment and they're not they're they're not going to question the narrative even if the narrative itself is contradictory and confusing for them it's much easier to just listen and believe whatever the mainstream narrative is there's that camp of people now then there's the other camp of people who reject everything the mainstream says and won't you know ever believe anything the mainstream media or like the general narrative on things or what they might see as more of like the control grid, you know, saying what the, what the story should be. They're not going to believe that at all. Now I'm more in agreement with, we shouldn't believe known liars and we should always question people who, especially people who are known to lie to us. On the other hand, we have to be careful not to just call things a conspiracy completely and say that it's not real and it's not going on and there's nothing happening and then, you know, not do any further questioning and research either. And just assume that we've always got it all figured out. And then there's no, you know, anybody that's just believing the mainstream is a total idiot. And I've got it all figured out because I think it's all a hoax and it's all bullshit. And it's all just a flu, man. And there's nothing else going on, you know. And I think that's largely problematic. I think that if you're not willing to accept that there's a mixture, a hybrid of the bio war, it's biological and psychological it's both there's not just one component that's so that's more getting into where i'm coming from with this series is there has been you know uh, biological agents environmental toxins and environmental conditions that have changed that are making people sick and that 
is not only possible to be done by uh, terrorists or non-state actors, but also state actors. And, uh, you know, I repeat myself, <laughs> St the state actor, the state terrorist actors who that's where I think is what's going on here is a little bit of getting out in front of what was seen to be an impending threat, things that have already gone on or where, um, you know, terrorist organizations could get a hold of anthrax or, you know, other biological weapons that the U.S. military creates and, you know, intentionally spread them throughout subway systems, throughout, uh, spray them off the coast of San Francisco, uh, release them uh, in the wild and in un unknown results could occur, right? And all the things I just explained, by the way, are things that are well documented that the U.S. military has done in an effort to, again, get out in front of the research and out in front of the results and the reaction so that you can then more, have more control over those conditions. So, you know, if I'm talking to a friend and they're at, I believe everything the mainstream media says about what's going on, and I, I just listen to Lord Fauci and Lord Gates and whatever they say is how I roll and how I think. Um, if I'm talking to someone like that and I'm trying to explain, you know, um, that it's possible that this thing has been modified in a lab and created as a, as a weapon, as a biological weapon, and that that could be done in the name of vaccine research or def defense research or um, just scientific research to be able to see, you know, what would happen if this virus developed and jumped into humans like this. So that's one place to start, okay? And that's, that's okay to open that door. But then you need to add more context, or at least that's what I would like to do. So a big part of what we're doing here is going into that research. And again, I think it's a big mistake to just be like, you know, it's just a big hoax. There's nothing going on. And then the people that kind of cheer that on too, like, yeah, man, I don't need to be wearing masks, bro. <laughs> and like, what I think is funny is like, and I don't think this is funny in a funny way. <laughs> I think it's funny in like a, a sick and psychotic and crazy way, but that you know in five years you we all might be wearing latex suits like <laughs> you know it like you could go look up and see like who are the people investing in latex and plastic like uh suit materials and things um you know because you know i'm laughing but we're making fun of the mask wearers but if you kind of get into the some of the stuff that i'm looking at on the other side with like what they're actually doing and what they're saying they're doing in their own documents you know like a rational person might actually then be wearing like a full body suit and be walking around. So like, I'm just waiting for that to be kick on. Like I may go invest in these companies that are going to be making the full body latex suits. <laughs> Again, laughing out of disgust and um, feeling like there's no other way <laughs> to not show apathy. And because I don't want to get angry, you know, on the, on, on live on the air, although I may someday, but for now, you know, the laughter is not thinking that that's really funny, but just more or less like, you know, Oh, there's nothing going on, man. It's totally bullshit. The government's would, you know, always lying to us. It's like saying like, well, yeah, so yeah, there's some things on nine 11 that we didn't know about, but so it's all bullshit. Like, so it didn't happen. Like there's a, you know, and that's kind of the argument with that. I feel like it's sort of being in shock about the situation and like calling, like you're kind of like taking a gamble, like, you know, oh, well, they've lied about so much before. Like, this is all just bullshit, man, you know? And like, you don't really know. <laughs> you, you've you not looked into it enough, apparently, because there there's a lot of this that is very 
uh, real that is part of the bio war. So there's a little bit of that rant. Again, just touching on the, the double-edged nature of the research, uh, the dual-use dilemma, um, the double-edged innovations and developments become problematic because uh, as soon as you uncover something in the lab about how you could make SARS uh, more vir vir virulent and uh, more spreadable or uh, make H1N1 virus uh, aerosolized, and you think that that's good for your vaccine research, which, again, when we go back and really uncover what vaccine research is, it's just weapons research. Again, it's another way to pass and spread viruses amongst the human population. Uh, but we'll leave that there for now and assume that it's all done in the name of health and science and truth and goodness. Um, there's uh, many problems with the other side of that and how easily that research could be weaponized. And that you could say, well, I'm researching, you know, free energy for all. And that ends up becoming like um, some bomb that blows up the entire planet. Um, but you were, you know, or like Tesla and his energy research, he, he had made an oscillator that, you know, apparently shook the foundations of buildings in some of his tests and could have been used to bring down buildings. And uh, imagine the shock and horror that he you know, thought about as his, he saw his research being taken from him and the, the, his best years where he should have been held up and cheered as one of the greatest minds of humanity was spent, you know, watching his research being taken away and no accolades, nobody uh, putting his name in the history books and holding him up as one of the greatest minds. Uh, and now, you know, most likely all of his research was weaponized and is being used in, in ways that, uh, is only to you know keep this whole thing going with the the military's um ever ever ongoing experimenting and testing which really at this point is just part of the you know new world order control grid is a militarized uh technocracy you know cybernetic control grid now uh further down what we're going to do here today is cover um yeah and so again there's always the stories about ro uh you know, vaccine research, and then there's the what about the Russians thing, and then there's the what about nature argument. As far as the justifications, if you go back and watched uh, double-edged developments, the opening 20 minutes of Fauci justifying that, well, I don't think, he's like, I don't think most people are, would be opposed to us researching this type of gain-of-function research, right? So let's cover some of the articles that we've highlighted over the course of the bio war and first i just want to highlight these this is more to just kind of back up the argument again that the the most evidence that we have seems to point to the fact that you know fort dietrich maryland um at other arms and entities and apparatuses of the u.s government are heavily interested and involved in the nih and the NIAID and Fauci's research organizations are hev heavily interested in funding uh, synthetic biological weapons research. And here, this article from The Guardian, you know, was talking about how synthetic biology, biology raises risk of new bioweapons, U.S. report warns. This was from uh, June of 2019. And... 
Uh, it's a short article, The Rapid Rise of Synthetic Biology, a, a Futuristic Field of Science That Seeks to Master the Machinery of Life, has raised the risk of a new generation of bioweapons, according to a major U.S. report into the state of the art. Advances in the area mean that scientists now have the capability to recreate dangerous viruses from scratch, make harmful bacteria more deadly, and modify common microbes so that they churn out lethal toxins once they enter the body. Um, so again, I'm not really looking to read the whole article, um, but let's just read the bottom. It says, one bioweapon that is not considered an immediate threat is a so-called gene drive that spreads through a population, rewriting human DNA as it goes. Quote, it's important to recognize that it's easy to come up with a scary sounding idea, but it's far more difficult to do something practical with it, unquote, said Carr. All right, so that will be in the show notes. And I'm just now kind of re going over some of these articles. This one here, a synthetic recombinant bat SARS-like coronavirus is infectious in cultured cells and in mice. That's one that you have to uh, print out. And I did, uh, I did print that out here. And I'm just going to put this one in the show notes. But again, this is from 2008, where they're talking about, you know, making SARS-like coronaviruses that infected cultured cells in mice all the way back in 2008 and I don't specifically have something I want to read out of that but I'm just kind of going over some of the evidence here so there's 2008 uh, them uh, messing with SARS-like coronaviruses uh, in the lab here's uh, an article from the scientist mortatorium of gain-of-function research uh, that was behind a paywall so I pulled it up over here uh, this article is from 2014 and just a highlighted section of that article here oh whoops i'm on the wrong wrong screen sorry um over here you can see that article and it wants me to log in so i've, I've just pulled it up on pocket here and we'll just read a little bit of that it says the white house office of science and technology policy ostp and Department of Health and Human Services last week, October 17th, announced it was launching a detailed review into so-called gain-of-function research in which pathogens are manipulated to alter their capabilities. Such research made headlines in 2012 after two groups instilled the avian influenza virus, H5N1, with the ability to transmit between ferrets through the air a feat that prompted a year-long moratorium on H5N1 research. Now, in the face of threats like influenza, SARS, and MERS, which have killed scores in the Middle East and Asia, the government is insisting to pause gain-of-function funding for experiments involved in these deadly viruses. And then it says, quote, The NIH has funded such studies because they help define the fundamental nature of human 
pathogen interactions, enable the assessment of the pandemic potential of emerging infections agents, and inform public health and preparedness efforts, unquote. National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins said in a statement, quote, These studies, however, also entail biosafety and biosecurity risks, which need to be better or understood better, unquote. And so you can go, there's not much more to that article. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, so again, you know, they're, they're always like, yeah, well, it's, it's all right. You know, it's all good if we're doing the research and uh, isn't, there's no problem with that. And then you look and, you know, several years later, there's a massive pandemics involving the stuff that they were uh, gain of functioning in the labs and were shut down several times for bio safety concerns. And they're talking about it right out in the open that they're doing these things and saying it's worth it. It's worth it to do it. Well, looking back now, I mean, would you tend to still agree with that or? I mean, if we look more into the AIDS virus, and, or sorry, HIV, our, you know, we're def, we're, we're going to go into that here in the bio sci war. It might, all, it might not all be continuously a series that we just continue on. I may start to mix in some other themes here. But as far as the bio sci war series, I mean, I, f- I figure we're going to be in that until the whole planet is basically <laughs> walking around in latex suits. And then at that point, you know the new normal will be so uh, normalized that we won't need to go into the bio war because, you know, you'll be born in a suit <laughs> and living in the Walmarts, you know. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, going back and just touching on these articles that I've covered in the bio war so far, but just kind of to reiterate and they re-go over our point. Uh, in 2019, the Fort Detrick lab shut down after failed safety inspection. All research halted indefinitely. All research at Fort Detrick lab- Laboratory that handles high-level disease-causing materials such as Ebola is on hold indefinitely after the Center of Disease Control and Prevention found the organization failed to meet biosafety standards. No infectious pathogens or disease-causing material have been found outside the authorized areas at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. So, you know, again, you can go see that they were shut down because of safety concerns back in August 2nd of 2019. Uh, Next, a biosecurity failure. This is a a more in-depth article. For the past 50 years, the nation's leading biodefense, this is from uh, thejournal.org, and let's just see if I had something highlighted in here specifically to read, or if we were just more pointing at, pointing at it for further things that you can go read about the history of the shutdowns and, and various uh, lab outbreaks or uh, safety concerns that have occurred, not in Wuhan and not, not in a... Uh, not, not anywhere else in the world, but uh, here in the United States uh, from our military and our NIH and our only, I'm only saying our because I live on the continent, but not because I'm part of some kind of club. Uh, and then we have here uh, the independent.co.uk back in, uh, let's see, when was this article written? I think I've had this problem before with this article. They don't clearly have it, or I'm looking too fast. On October of 2018, and it says the U.S. military plan, the U.S. military's plan to spread viruses using insects could create a new class of biological weapons. Scientists warn. 
and we'll learn more about like why the bugs but insects could be turned into a new class of biological weapons using the u.s military plans experts have warned the insect allies program and we've learned about that before in the biosci war from darpa and their insect allies it looks like there's another good article from that from the independent on that um, but basically you know weaponizing bugs uh, to to save the plants you know that's why they're doing it not to spread vaccinations or anything like that around or uh, mrna gene altering materials into the environment that could easily then be spread around by these uh insects um but yeah so we see jumping down here in that article from the independent in uh, 2018 they also noted that despite darpa stating that no insects used should survive longer than two weeks if such safeguards were not in place quote the spread could in principle be unlimited unquote well, what if they reproduce i mean come on now what about these ticks that we've been reading about are they also meant to only last a certain amount of time we, we seem to have finding connections that sh show otherwise um one article i no, that's that's the article is good enough for now and then i'll link this new, the other one that i opened here if i can remember to in the show notes and we'll get to the next one but i i almost i almost forgot one this one's very important this is from the lancet in 2003 september 2003 and it says will influenza this text is a little small so bear with me here it says, will influenza be the next bioweapon? <laughs> and it starts out, the use of influenza as a bioterrorist weapon is a clear and present danger, warns Mohammed Medij, uh, Medij, University of Texas Health and Science Center, Houston, Texas, USA. Quote, our work on the effects of influenza on cardiovascular mortality shows that Many people die from influenza-related microcardial infraction, which is not reported as influenza mortality. Thus, mortality due to influenza in the U.S. alone is much more than previously estimated, probably 90,000 annually rather than the reported 20,000, once the effect on the heart is taken into account, unquote. Now, I'm going to skip down. Uh, skip this paragraph, although you should read the entire article. Here, I'll get myself out of the way and zoom in a little bit more. And I'm going to skip down to this part here, which says, Critics say that it would be hard to create an influenza strain that is virulent enough to pose a significant threat, but counters Klaus Stauer. Project leader of the um, sorry the text is a little small here and I'm a little far away. Project leader of the WHO's global influenza program, sh the quote the tools to create a virulent strain are readily available unquote. With reverse genetics, the same technology that was used to construct a vaccine against the H5N1 influenza strain. Um, from the Drug and Discovery Today, 2003, pages 518 and 519, quote, we can readily produce the surface proteins and other proteins needed to assemble viruses on demand, he says. Quote, we could reproduce the 1918 virus or develop 
one that is completely new, put it together with other proteins necessary for the virus to function and then release it. Starr would prefer to use the reverse genetics and other technologies to develop cross-subtype specific vaccines. We have the hemagglutinin genes H1 and H15, and we should have vaccines that protect against H1 and H15. So again, uh, you could read more about this. Uh, Let's see, it says, skipping down here, I'm just going to read this section as well. Governments can also prepare added Medij and colleagues by providing better security for laboratories, vaccine manufacturers, and distributors, improve influenza immunization programs, expanded disease surveillance, and use the antiviral filters, biosensors, and inactivation mechanisms for ventilation systems stockpiling antivirals would also help so again I, that i wanted to get in there for there's more context later coming up on on that uh but skipping ahead in the essence of time that's an important one that'll be in the show notes you can definitely go check that out that's from the lancet in 2003. uh now back to the screen here we're gonna talk about the ever important and seemingly uh one of the better articles that have come out in some time on this topic and much uh, much praise and all credit obviously going to those over at The Last American Vagabond, specifically uh, Whitney Webb in this case, although I uh, really appreciate Ryan for coming on the, uh, the uh, Grand Theft World last week. You can check that out. Actually, it's up now on the Grand Theft World YouTube channel. We've been allowed to publish back there again now. The gates have come up for our content to be released. And here you can see the interview from um, Ryan Christian. For these type of dynamics. Uh, for a special guest on Grand Theft World number 18. And that's an excellent interview that you can go check out. He is the one who put together the Last American Vagabond blog and uh, has, has uh, organized the people that write on there. This article, again, bats, gene editing, and bioweapons, recent DARPA experiments raise concern amid coronavirus outbreak. This is a key article. Definitely recommend going and reading through the whole thing, uh, just to read a little bit of it into the record here. DARPA recently spent millions on research involving bats and coronaviruses. This is from January 30th, 2020, as well as gene editing quote, bioweapons, unquote, prior to the recent coronavirus outbreak. Now, quote, strategic allies, unquote, of the agency have been cho chosen to develop a genetic material-based vaccine to halt the potential epidemic. And there's lots of links, lots of uh, resources and material that can be uncovered here. Uh, DARPA partnering with CEPI, and if you go look, they've also funded Moderna, as long as well as with Bill and Melinda Gates also funding Moderna back in 2019, which we uncovered in Grand Theft World podcast number 17 and found from a, a letter to the shareholders in 2019 from Moderna that they disclosed the funding from Bill and Melinda Gates and DARPA. Um, I could pull that up now and do it live. Uh, it's well worth it. I mean, 
why not? What's the point of having this browser in front of me and doing it live if I'm not going to pull stuff up as I talk about it? So it's just I'm putting some strain with all the browsers and the bandwidth and the hamsters, you know, don't want to spin them too hard. So if I was right, that was Grand Theft World podcast number 17. Let's see how, di- how good we did at getting that link in the show notes. DARPA, Moderna, here we are, 2019 shareholder letter. And you can see this is from 2019, right, in Moderna. And if we go down in the tiny, tiny print at the bottom, <laughs> uh, once we get there, you can see this reference. I have to, I'm going to accept everything they want to do to me first. And then I'm going to zoom way in so that the audience can see at the bottom, it says uh, from the cited reference number one at the top, which they're talking about their funding, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Additional funding is subject to agreement on scope of additional projects. So there you go. There's the funding that Moderna received in 2019 from the military and Bill and Melinda Gates. And now they're, uh, you know, out there selling or getting their products into your arms that they developed. How lucky are they that they, they had the foresight? I mean, in 2019, wow, what, what kind of foresight to be able to see that this Moderna vaccine was going to be needed in uh, 2020. Wow. What, what a what a novel and brilliant idea they had i was trying to find where they actually cited that reference let me see let me just search the number one huh huh that was not the way to go about it apparently anyway i'll let you go through peruse through that and what this the shareholders document is talking about and you know i mean again that is that is great foresight on their part you know that the military darpa barda and the bill and melinda gates foundation all knew that uh we were going to need this moderna technology in 2020 it's just a tremendous you know i mean i guess the lord works in mysterious ways you know All right, so what else do we want to get through before we go into the bulk of the material today? (laughs) The bulk. Everybody's like, wait, I thought we were in the bulk of the material. Uh, Yeah, so after that, we could read the conclusion from Whitney Webb's article. Research conducted by the Pentagon and DARPA specifically has continually raised concerns, not just in the field of bioweapons and biotechnology, but also in the field of nanotechnology, robotics, and several others. DARPA, for instance, has been developing a series of unsettling research projects that range from microchips that can be that can create and delete memories from the human brain to voting machine software that is rife with problems. Now, as fear regarding the current coronavirus outbreak begins to peak, companies with direct ties to DARPA have been tasked with developing its vaccine, a long-term human and environmental impact of which are no un are unknown and will remain unknown by the time the vaccine is expected to go to market in a few weeks time. Furthermore, DARPA and the Pentagon's past history with bioweapons and their more recent experiments on genetic alteration and extinction technologies as well as bats and coronaviruses in proximity to China have been largely left out of the narrative. 
despite the information being publicly available. Also left out of the media narrative have been the direct ties of both the USAMRIID and DARPA-partnered Duke University in the city of Wuhan, including the Institute of Medical Virology. Though much about the origins of the coronavirus outbreak remains unknown, the U.S. military ties to the aforementioned research studies and research institutions are worth detailing as such research, while justified in the name of, quote, national security, unquote, has the frightening potential to result in unintended yet world-altering consequences, the lack of transparency about this research such as DARPA's decision to classify its controversial genetic extinction, extinction research and technologies used as a weapon of war, compounds these concerns. While it's important to avoid reckless speculation as a result of possible... Uh, sorry, let me start over with that sentence. While it is important to avoid reckless speculation as much as possible, it is the opinion of this author that the information in this report is in the public interest and that the reader should use the information to reach their own conclusions about the topics discussed herein. Very well said. And I think that, that you know, <laughs> if you read the article, it's hard to not draw certain conclusions. Um, now, if you if you followed the Biowar series, it's also hard not to draw certain conclusions but I try to leave my opinion out of it for the most part and just point you to the information that I feel like is helpful for you to go through yourself. And, you know, I am kind of pr putting forth a, a theory and a thread that I'm pulling on. I'm willing to change my, my opinion and my ideas and thoughts as time goes on. I'm not like glued to, to the outcome of me proving that, you know, my point. That was more or less of a point I had come to long before and now I'm doing the diligence to uncover more of the history and put the materials in front of not only myself, but others, uh, hopefully in a helpful way that, uh, you know, might get people to be able to think about things a little bit differently or see it a little bit differently. And uh, we do it live to keep uh, the sync up of, of being able to do it weekly without uh, post-production uh, so I can be, you know, more light with the production to just get it out onto the record, kind of like a live radio show. That, in turn, will hopefully over time increase my ability to just be succinct and to the point and get the show done. And, as always, I've never really had my held myself to a standard of, like, I have to do it every week and it's got to be, like, you know, I may take times off, six months, years. And uh, for the most part, though, I want to create an archive of, on TylerBlur.com where I will have, you know, these things laid out to be able to point to, to reference and I am going to build a page of like an archive list where somebody could just go and pull up my archive in one page because I do recognize that. Although, of course, you could go see the latest post in the BioSci War right here on the front page. Every sort of series I do has its own title. And you can go click that and find it like that or falling into the movement traps or my walk and talks or creature of control or Liberty Life, so everything's kind of done with the big picture. You can click it and go into it. But I'd like to also build an archive, just line by line. Here's all the shows in one page. People can go easily pull up and see what it's about in a brief summary and click on it. And so that's coming. And again, in the long run, that'll put out a picture of the, 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 the story I've been trying to tell, the tapestry I've been trying to weave in these different areas. 
so that while I'm talking out there to your average basic dipshit, I can share, you know, the information with them in a way that makes sense. And they can see that I'm coming at it from, you know, someone who's put in a lot of time and effort to try to, you know, get the information out and not necessarily just like fly by night meme posting on social media, trying to like make you look bad with your opinion, taking more time to go into the information here. And also I archive the shows on an audio version so people can go um, listen to the audio archives uh, while they're out and about in an easy way with their favorite podcast application. Um, and over time, the audio archive might become more valuable than this kind of sh you know, video show. And depending on how people like to consume things, I know I personally like when a content creator also makes the audio archive easily available. All right, so moving forward with today's episode, uh, the other th few more things that we just need to cover uh, that we've covered in the past just to kind of tie the knot would be the House of Representatives uh, orders Pentagon to investigate whether ticks were once used as biological weapons in July 17th of 2019. That's a CNN politics article. Uh, we also had the Guardian House orders Pentagon to review. Same thing, same story um, from July of 2019. As we saw from the interview with uh, Rick, Ricky Verandas and Chris Newby last week that I played a large portion of that into the show, that was uh, dismissed. They, they aren't going to be looking at this, and they've got too many other things going on, apparently. This is not important uh, to them to look into, but it was brought up uh, in the House, and that's interesting. So they, they're, they were trying to order the Pentagon to review this uh, history of ticks being used as a bioweapon and you know cnn also covered that i would play this clip here but they'll probably then claim that i'm using their copywritten material or something and then we have uh forget about from the guardian uh support the guardian from the guardian uh back in uh 20 uh january 25th of 2018 we had an article here that says forget ebola sars and zika ticks are the next global health threat Ticks carry a wide array of pathogens and environmental changes <clears throat> mean they are spreading. I'm assuming that they're saying that ticks are spreading because of the environmental changes. <laughs> so it's it's probably carbon dioxide that's feeding the ticks. That's what's causing them to grow more. But I'm not really going to look through this whole article. This is an interesting article, but rather just to show... You know, that I'm not totally off base and neither is Chris Newby here with our claims about, or not, not our claims, with, with going into looking into what's going on now as being a potential uh, lab created or government test or militarized uh, live test that has gone on or an intentional release of a biological weapons agent along with the whole Great Reset agenda and you know, global takeover of everything and global communism, you know, neo-communism 2.0, things like that. Uh, you know, it's not crazy to, to go and research th this stuff because clearly, you know, there are people even, you know, in the house uh, writing these articles uh, going into the dangers of what I've been discussing here in the show. And that's mainly what we've been trying to go over. And in fact, here's Willie Bergdolfer here, the guy that we've been learning about who, uh, the Swiss scientist who was imported uh, into 
America to, or, you know, hired to do biological weapons research with ticks. And he says here in his own writing, Dear Dale, this is uh, sent to the entomology division at Fort Detrick, enclosed are three copies of the final report on E.J. We intended to write it up before Christmas, but the season's rush finally prevented getting it done. Today, I chatted, chatted with Dr. E. Oliver, who arrived here yesterday. Since he shows a great interest in artificial feeding techniques of ticks, I suggested a practice session in glass capillary feeding and injecting techniques tomorrow morning. Although we are still very busy with setting up necessary equipment of fluorescent microscopy, we already are outlining our field studies on Colorado tick fever for the coming tick season. In addition, we are running various experiments on simultaneous infections of Derman Center Ardensonia with Colorado tick fever and Rickettsia rickettii organisms. It will be in of interest to see whether they are actually exist in interference between these two agents. So he's, you know, he's happy about his research, but he's talking about injecting viruses and bio making bio ticks into bioweapons in this letter, essentially. And that's the researcher himself admitting that that's what he was doing, you know, um, with Colorado tick fever. So not to like, you know, not that we haven't talked about that already. I just thought that was an interesting article I found on Chris Newby's uh, site. And then later we're going to go into this Spyroquette's Warfare by Ellen Cook. But we are going to now uh, get into the book that we started to go into last week and ran out of time. And I definitely want to make the time for it today. So uh, let's just jump into it now before I get too long-winded. If I can find it, where did I put it here? All right. Now... <laughs> I'm not sure how I would lose the book in the mix here, but I got too many other books stacked on top of it. Uh, there's Bitten, A Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons by Chris Newby. We read the back cover. We read the sleeves last week. We read a few quotes out of the book. Today, we're going to go way more in-depth into the book. So um, we're going to do some reading today, kids. And... We're going to do that a lot on this show. So if you don't like uh, reading, well, that's why I'm doing it for you. <laughs> because I, I can read the books, right? I'll take the time to read the books. I'll take the time to find the interesting parts. I can take the time to read it into the record. Thus, uh, you know, helping remove your excuses for not being aware of the information. And then not being able to say like, well, I've never heard of that. You know, we we can make that more easy for you. We can read the books, I can take the time to collect the research and attempt to do a good job at reading it into the record. Um, so again, we're reading, I just need to check something here. So I'm kind of filling the space telling you about me checking something as I check it. Because there was something that I skipped. So we're going to get to this, but I want to get back to really quick uh, reading from pages 18 through 23 in the last book. We, we also read about um, Plum Island and Lab 257 in the last episode of TikTok Bio Op Part 1. 
here in TikTok bio op part two, there's more that we should go into regarding that. And these are the pages that we read last time. I'm going to skip ahead to page 18 in lab 257. And reading from Lime, the section on Lime Island. And yeah, this is a, a bit of a longer section. So just bear with me as we read this into the record from lab 257 uh, here in the bio sci war. TikTok bio op part two. By 1990, the East and the East End Long Island had by leaps and bounds the largest incidence of Lyme disease in the nation. But why? The, uh, the geography, you can pinpoint cases of Lyme disease on the map of the United States by drawing a circle around the area of largest infection. Now you can tighten that circle into a small point until, until a single small point is reached. That point, Plum Island. Spokes radiate outward from that point and pass through the neighborhoods boasting the highest rates of Lyme disease containment in the nation. The vectors in the 1950s, the cocking of rifle, was the often heard on Plum Island, portending the demise of deer that swam from the mainland to the uh, forage. Over time, fewer rifle shots were heard as the number of deer swimming to, to and fro increased, collecting ticks along the way. While each deer were periodically shot, there was no stopping the wild birds. Retired scientists Jim and Carol House have been birding on Plum Island for over 20 years now, never missing an Audubon Society Christmas bird count where they scout the terrain with binoculars, scribbling notes and s snapping pictures. Quote, Plum Island has a unique bird life, unquote, says Jim House. It's not, quote, it's got purple sandpipers, harlequin ducks, robins, eiders, osprey, wobblers, and woodcocks, unquote, says Carol. Plum even hosts the golden and bald eagles who come in and dine on the baby Canadian geese, quote, it's one of their favorite stops in the springtime, unquote. There's no short supply of bald eagles found because massive flocks of Canadian geese rule the island in droves, quote, we call them the Canadian Air Force, unquote, says one worker, quote, we made a list of of a hundred and forty different species, unquote, said Carol. Quote, one time I counted over 200 brown creepers, unquote. The American Museum of National History runs a wild bird colony. Okay, so blah, blah, blah. That's fine. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Plum Island, breeders of Canadian geese. Okay, that's fine. I'm still going to skip to this part. And it says, let's face it. Plum Island scientist Dr. Douglas Greg Reese said to a reporter, quote, there can be no absolute guarantee of securing the island, unquote. Wait, did I not just read? Okay, yeah. 
The theories attempts by the scientific community to explain the origins of Lyme disease are far more convincing. One popular theory holds that ticks always had BB bacteria germs, similar to BB, existed in Europe and Asia for 300 years, and infections are, infections are the result of human-altered habits which, in which the pests live. So he, this person is giving a, you know, the, the mainstream argument is much more convincing. A century ago goes the theory that there were far fewer woods in the United States and deer near extinct because of the modern conservation movements forests replaced farmlands and populations of deer birds and small animals surged in this environment ticks multiplied suburban developments did the same as dr ralph terno reasons quote by the mid 1970s human beings collective behavior had created circumstances so that favored the spread of lyme disease that sooner or later it was bound to attract people's notice and demand a protective response we made our own sickbed and now we have to lie in it unquote so that's like the theory that it's just a natural born illness and that it's you know it's our fault for the way that we've treated the environment this theory assumes that lyme disease was a gradual problem that attracted attention nothing is further from the truth what occurred in Old Lyme in 1975 was the outbreak of an unknown illness concentrated, sorry, looking for my pen, concentrated within a defined geographical location that infected 39 children and 12 adults and was a modest epidemic. Old Lyme's outbreak was the footprint of something that had uh, deposited itself there and festered. Lyme disease cannot simply be ascribed to poor land and use patterns. That when 10 miles south of Old Lyme lies the untamed island, teeming with ticks, birds, deers, and mice, hosting two high-hazard germ laboratories proven to be anything but reliable in containing foreign germs. White-tailed deer often swim across Plum Gut and two miles wide strait that separates Plum Island from Long Island. Countless birds, including seagulls, Canadian geese, and osprey, fly between the coastal connect. Connecticut, Long Island, and Plum Island. Old Lyme lies directly in the flight vector of birds that congregate on Plum Island and migrate north and south along the east coast. When biological security was taken seriously in the early 1950s, deer were shot on sight when trained by trained snipers. Even puppies and dogs fatefully setting their paws on the island's beaches with their owners would be euthanized. By 1975, germs on Plum Island increased in both numbers and virulence, but safety and security measures moved in the opposite direction. Tests were supposed to be held in airtight laboratory rooms. Instead, internal government documents proved there was gaping holes in the lab roof where the air currents and insects freely came and went, depending upon the direction of the wind. What's more, the animals were held in outdoor pens where they were injected with virus vaccines and fed out of open-air feeding troughs. Plum Island workers witnessed birds flying in and out of the pens, picking morsels from the troughs. Wild animals were shooned away, but not before the birds swooped down and mingled with the test animals. One eyewitness reported seeing deer entering the animal pens to feed. If Dr. Traub continued his outdoor germ experiments with the army and experimented with ticks outdoors, the ticks would have made contact with mice, deer, and more. 
than 140 species of wild birds known to frequent the ne nest on Plum Island. The birds spread their toxic cargo to resting and nesting perches atop the great elms of the oaks of Old Lyme and elsewhere. Just like the other spread of West Nile virus through the United States, researchers trying to prove that Lyme disease existed before 1975 claimed to have isolated BB in, tick collected, in ticks collected nearby Shelter Island and Long Island in the late 1940s. That timing coincides with both Eric Traub's arrival in the United States on Project Paperclip and the Army's selection of Plum Island as its offshore biological warfare laboratory. The USDA spokesperson Sandy Miller says, is, um, Hayes is unconvinced about the possibility of the link between Lyme disease and Plum Island. Uh, she says, Lyme, or let's see, so that person... Is that not convinced? And then she, I think she says here, Lyme disease, um, let's see, Lyme disease, the positive agent for Lyme, well, the positive agent for Lyme disease was identified in 1948, which was about six years before Plum Island came into being. So then some people blame the army. There is a part of me that says, quote, let's get this straight. The U.S. Army that had saved the world came along after World War and said, let's poison a bunch of ticks and turn them loose on the people in Connecticut, unquote. We kind of giggled around here about the stories, but some of them are just outlandish. I always laugh about Nazi scientists. Do you want to hear about how scientists are keeping a cow from drooling, or do you want to hear about poison ticks and the Nazi scientists? It's always more fun to tell the scary stories. And that's the end of that section. And moving on, on Lab 257, we're just reading a, a small excerpt from the book here on page 22 now um, about Plum Island and Traub and the ticks and the biological weapons research that was happening there and some of the safety concerns. A PR expert, Hayes, had Scientific America eating out of her hands in June of 2000 when they reported her saying, well, we still get asked about the Nazi scientists the slightest trace of weariness creeping into her voice. In their feature story on Plum Island, the prestigious magazine dubbed the intriguing surroundings uh, the island as a, quote, fanciful, fictional tapestry, unquote. But as much as Mr. Hayes and the Scientific American might like to laugh or shrug it off, Hard facts are indeed facts. The Army and the USDA conducted numerous outdoor biological warfare experiments within the United States borders. The Army and the USDA were cooperating in a germ warfare laboratory built on Plum Island. The U.S. recruited the key architects of Nazi Germany germ warfare programs who worked directly for Heinrich Himmler after Fort Dietrich and the CIA interrogated him. The Nazi scientists developed the idea to build Plum Island modeled after their own germ warfare lab on Inzel Reams. The USDA borrowed this Nazi scientist to work in its Washington, D.C. area laboratories, and the very Nazi scientists who now confirm to have been on Plum Island at least three occasions, there aren't, quote, fictional tapestries, unquote, or, quote, scary movies, unquote. There are scary facts from which conclusions can be shown to be drawn can be shown be, and can and should be drawn sorry while the army and the usda are quick 
to deny the Plum Island tick experiments ever occurred. Every few years, the public learned learns of a top-secret germs warfare test who existence in the U.S. government had long been denied. Consider the 2002 Pentagon disclosure in the New York Times about the 1964 test. The Defense Department sprayed live nerve and biological agents on ships and sailors in the Cold War era experiments to test the naval vulnerability to toxic warfare, the Pentagon said today. Six tests were carried out. Hundreds of sailors were exposed to poisons in some of the experiments known as Project Shipboard Hazard or SHAD. Of of the six tests, three used sarin, a nerve gas, or VX, a nerve gas agent used in Iraq by Saddam Hussein against its own people. I wonder where he got that. One used staphylococcal exteriotoxin B, known as SEB, a biological toxin one used a simulant of muscarsins, believed to be harmless, but subsequently found to be dangerous. 4,300 military personnel were identified as participants in Project Shad. Well, those are, you know, at least they volunteered for that position voluntarily. All right, so as we can see here, that book continues on, and there's definitely more interesting material to be gone into. Uh, But we are going to leave Lab 257 for now, and we are going to get back into that again at some point in the future. And now, finally, we're going to be getting into Bitten, and I'm not going to poke around or go anywhere else. I'm just going to get into it, because I've been saying we're going to get into it, and somehow we keep not getting into it. So I have lots of sections picked out here. I'm going to be hopping around. Bear with me as I do, but I'm going to be reading a few excerpts from the book Bitten. Here we are on Confession, the chapter, uh, page 102, and it says here, I turned off my TV screen and sat in the dark. I was stunned. Based on what I had just seen on the video, I believed that Willie was telling the truth, a truth that had been eating away at his soul for more than 30 years. Gray had sent me the video because he wanted to help me with his investigation. I hesitated. This is Chris Newby, you know, narrating the book as she had Lyme disease and was doing the research to write the book. I hesitated. I had battled Lyme disease for seven years and had had been symptom-free for three. And while I was recovering, I had spent three and a half years working on the Lyme disease documentary. Now I wanted to move on. I had a great job writing about the latest advances in medical research at Stanford University. My kids were almost finished with college. Let someone else carry this torch. I needed boring, safe normalcy. Still, I felt a nagging guilt that the documentary had missed its mark. And if Willie's claim was true, a crime against humanity had been committed by the U.S. government and then covered up. If the full story weren't told, millions more Lyme patients would suffer. Somebody needs to dig out the truth. And I figured that somebody was me. Okay, I'm going to switch back here to pages 25 to 27. And just again, you know, Willie Bergdofer was an, uh, maybe a thought, you know, he was doing a good thing. 
he was a, a man who was doing research on something that he was passionate about and that ended up being used as uh, biological weapons uh, research and uh, his legacy was then classified all the discoveries and things that he thought he was making along the way were weaponized and uh you know we can go into what his intentions were but he he himself as was pointed out in the last episode did not say that lyme disease um was caused by weaponized ticks and and he did not make that link himself and did not say you know hey i admit that lyme disease was caused by weaponized ticks but he did admit to weaponizing ticks and um, maybe once we uncover more about the nature of Lyme disease, we could understand more. But uh, going here, we're on uh, page 24 and 25. We're going to read a section here. Willie's academic advisor, Rudolf Geige, was born in 1902 to an upper wealthy class family that found, founded what would become J.R. Geige's AG, a chemical company that started as a family business in 1758. The company's Basel headquarters was were on the Rhine River in the regions where the borders of Switzerland, France, and Germany met. During World War II, the company was perfectly situated to sell goods to both the Allies and Germany. The original Geige company started off as a textile dye manufacturer and then moved into chemicals. During the war, it produced insecticides and, most notably, the iconic polar red dye that colored the background of the Nazi swastika flag. Early in life, Geige opted for the adventure and jungle helmer over the traditional positions in the family firm. With the help of his family wealth, he had dedicated his life to minimizing the human toil of tropical diseases, many of which were transmitted by anthropods. To support the mission, he established the Swiss Tropical Institute Field Laboratory of Tanganyika, part of present-day Tanzania. In 1949, the center Seuss and Rikers scientists uh, in Cor de Ivoire in 1951. Even during war, his citizenship in neutral countries established him to travel freely. The quote, the Swiss are above suspicion, unquote, said Geige, who later in life wore a thinly fictionalized novella, Siri, Top's, uh, Siri Top Secret, that described the spy's activities he observed during his travels. It's not known if Geige participated in these activities, but he did help place young researchers in institutions that supported the U.S. bioweapons program. All right, we're going to skip ahead. In Chris Newby's book, Bitten. <clears throat> this, okay, so for the next few hours, Sensini's team rode around the subway system carrying bacterial sniffers disguised as briefcases and purses. Sensini's photographic light meter was actually a device that tracked temperatures and humidity. 
At the end of the day, one of the sensors at the 23rd Street stations showed calculated respiratory exposure to be 100,000 spores to a breath of five minutes after the light bulbs broke. By June 10th, a million New Yorkers were catching spores in the wet warmth of their lungs, unquote, and Cincinnati had and uh, Cincinnati. Had it been anthrax in the light bulbs, the spores would have put New Yorkers out of commission. So this is talking about one of the, the experiments that the CIA did, um, breaking light bulbs uh, in the subway systems to see how it would spread out with a bac Bactilius sibilis. So this was one of many of open-air tests conducted in the 1960s and 70s by the CIA, the U.S. Army, and the Department of Defense. The coastal tests were conducted by personnel in Project Shipboard Hazard and Defense, SHAD, who sprayed simulated live and live bio biological chemical agents over the North Atlantic Pacific Oceans near the Marshall Islands. Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and California coast. Land-based tests took place domestically in Alaska, Hawaii, Maryland, Florida, Utah, and Georgia, and internationally in Panama, Canada, and the United Kingdom. In 1964 and 1965, they used Bacillus subtilis to simulate uh, a physical characteristics of the smallpox virus in airborne tests in Washington, D.C., National Airport, and Greyhound bus terminal. Some of these human experiments were revealed through the Senate in 1976 Church Committee Report, an independent Church of Scientology investigation, and a 2003 class action lawsuit filed against the U.S. government on behalf of the test subjects and veterans involved in SHAD projects. But a few of these open-air tests are still classified. The records have been destroyed, or the details of the operations were never put in writing. So talking again, uh, we 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 just read about that in um, Lab 257. So that that was just talking about that Operation Shad, and the the um, military tests that were done. Now those dudes probably didn't. Those dudes and gals probably had no idea that that's what was going on, and they're just like cruising along on their ship journey, you know, doing their thing. And uh, the Navy is spraying chemical weapons on them to test out the reactions that probably severely injured a lot of those people. And that kind of stuff still goes on with the vaccines and the tests. And it's just, it's more and more obfuscated to the soldiers who just think like that, you know, they're sick for a number of other reasons when, you know, psychologically you could make a determination that a lot of the people that are end up killing themselves after serving on duty probably have, you know, severe issues in the brain because of, uh, biological testing that had been done to them uh, throughout their service in the military, their voluntary service. So on page 77 now, uh, I'm going to read a section here. At Rehaket's lab the next day, the men plotted out a research agenda that could be completed within four weeks. Knowing that his letters home would be opened and read by the communist enrolled controlled government, Willie included nothing about the experiments when writing to Dale, an interview with Fort Detrick's Director of Biological Research, Dr. J.R. Goodlow, on February 16, 1962. 
however, suggest one possible research agenda. Quote, research on the new agents has tended to concentrate on viral and rickettsial diseases, with major efforts directed at increased first-hand knowledge of their so-called, i.e. anthropod-borne viruses, unquote. The United States had also begun basic research on the genetic manipulation of microorganisms. In that same report, Goodlow added, quote, Studies of bacterial genetics are also in progress, and the aim of transferring genetic determinants from one type of organism to another, unquote. The goal of the experiment was to make biological agents more virulent and resistant to antibodies. Willie's personal agenda was to learn everything he could about Rehakek's new method for mass-producing ricochets and viruses in live tick tissue cells floating in flasks. Considered better than the old methods of growing these microbes in fertilized chicken eggs, uh, Rehehek, sorry, I'm doing the worst job at pronouncing that word, had his own agenda at that name. He was rolling out with red carpet for Willie in hopes of getting a 6-12 to 12 month research fellowship at Rocky Mountain Lab. Alright, so this week I'm not forgetting to put back my bookmarks. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm jumping around a little here and I know, but we're getting we're getting the the parts of this book into the record that I wanted to. And so, it might not be like totally drawing a line directly, but you got to you got to open up, you know, and just just hear what I'm saying in the longer picture with what I'm reading in these excerpts uh throughout. Uh let's see. So, I definitely wanted to include this section, and this is from page uh, 68, 69, and 70 from Bitten, from Chris Newby, The Secret History of, History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. It was, at f it was a fork in the road of Willie's career. For the previous 13 years, he had been the military's go-to expert for mass-producing disease, disease agents inside live anthropods. But now the military had switched to a more reliable method of growing the microbes in vats of soupy growth mediums or in live insect cells in flasks. These microbes could then be freeze-dried or mixed in liquid suspensions designed to be disseminated over large areas in bombs or sprayers. Realizing that he could no longer earn his living as a zookeeper of crawling things, Willie had decided he'd need to learn a new skill or he'd be out of a job. He revealed his feelings about this in a letter to Dale on June 25th of 1965. I, am, I, quote, am I capable of learning a new field or shall I get old and discontent like the others at RML, Rocky Mountain Lab? who are waiting for their retirement. You know, as well as I do, Dally, that medical entomology is the thing of the past. I could always find a job in Europe over the tropics, but that would mean that we'd have to leave God's country, unquote. Advances in microbial genetics had opened up the potential of manipulating viruses and rickettsias to create more powerful weapons, both lethal and incapacitating. 
The perfect incapacitating agents was one of the one that made a large percentage of the population moderately ill for weeks to months. The illness is is caused would have to be hard to diagnose and treat, and under the best circumstances, the target population shouldn't even be aware that they have been dosed with a bioweapon. This would be made easier for invading vac vaccinated soldiers to take over cities and industrial infrastructure without much of a fight or destruction of property. Bioweapons researchers such as Willie knew that infecting large populations would require exposing people to agents for which they had no natural immunity. And to do this, researchers would have to import and to invent new microbes. They were, in essence, playing God, creating, quote, bacteriological freaks or mutants, unquote, by using chemical radiation, ultraviolet light, and other agents, wrote modern investigative journalist pioneer Jack Anderson in a Washington Post column on August 27, 1965. Willie had already been conducting a trial-and-error style of genetic manipulation, in the same way that a corn farmer or a hog farmer selectively breeds strains that result in desired outcomes. He was growing microbes inside ticks and having the ticks feed on animals and then harvesting the microbes from the animals that exhibited the level of illness the military had requested. He was also simultaneously mixing bacteria and viruses inside of ticks, leveraging the virus's innate ability to manipulate bacterial genes in order to reproduce and thus accelerate the rate of mutations and desirable new bacterial traits. In 1966, Fort Detrick Biological Subcommittee Munitions Advisory Group put this emerging research at the top of its priorities, describing it as research in microbial genetic concerned with the aspects of transformation, transduction, and recombination, unquote. The administrators at Rocky Mountain Labs needed a share of this military funding to stay open, so they took on some of these projects, including the development of a Q-fever incapacitating agent and preliminary research on the biological web on the bioweapon potential of Rickettsia rickettsi and Rift Valley fever virus, a uh, biloba virus, and two rickettsias that caused flea-borne and lice-borne typhus. Willie's homework assignment in London was to learn the latest techniques in mass-producing, viewing, and manipulating these very small, fuzzy microbes and bring these skills back to the Rocky Mountain Lab. Okay, so that was from the chapter Special Operations, pages 69 through 71 in the book Bitten by Chris Newby, and uh, we're going to skip ahead here to this chapter. Later in the video, grade circled back to the topic, so this is talking about the video interview of Willie uh, Bergdofer and uh, some of the things that were said in the interview. Uh, one of the interviews with him, there was, there was a few later in life that he gave, and here's an excerpt from one of those interviews. Later in the video, Gray circled back to the topic and asked, Quote, if there's an emergence of a brand new epidemic that has the tenets of all those things that you put together, do you feel responsible for that? Unquote. And then he answers, quote, yeah, it sounds like 
throughout the 38 years, I may have dot, 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 the lab director telephoned me, quote, this is the director, and so I got s somebody here from the FBI. Will you come down and will you ask a few questions? Exactly the same thing I could recall all these discussions, unquote, Willie said. Finally, after three hours and 14 minutes, Gray asked him the one question, the only question he really cared about, quote, was the pathogen that you found in the tick that Alan Steer, in parentheses, the Lyme outbreak investigator, un parentheses, gave you the same pathogen or similar or generationally mutation of the one you published in the paper, the paper from 1952? In response, Willie crossed his arms defensively, took a deep breath, stared into the camera for 43 seconds, an eternity. Then he looked away, down and to the right. He appeared to be working through an internal debate. The left side of his mouth briefly curled up as if he was thinking, ah, oh, well, then anger flashed across his face. Yeah, he said, more in German than in English. It was a stunning admission from one of the world's foremost authorities on Lyme disease. If it were true, it meant that Willie had left out essential data from his scientific articles on Lyme disease outbreak, and that as a disease spread like wildfire in the Northeast and Great Lakes regions in the United States, he was part of the cover-up of the truth. He seemed to be saying that Lyme disease wasn't naturally occurring germ, one that may have gotten loose and been sprayed, or spread glo by global warming, an explosion of deer, and other environmental changes. It had been created in a military bioweapons lab for specific purposes of harming human beings, and somehow it had gotten out. At the end of the interview, Gray grilled him for almost four hours. Willie wiped tears from his eyes. With one with that one word, confession, he had opened the door to possibly explaining uh, to a possible explanation for the complexities of Lyme that had eluded activists, journalists, and physicians and scientists for more than 30 years. Gray turned off one of the cameras, but not the other one, and began packing up the gear with his assistant. In the half-light of the fading summer day, the second camera shows Willie as he stares off into some invisible point in the distance. His face sags. A wind chimes outside of the window, and he lifts his head. Quote, the winds are blowing out of the canyons, unquote, he says, looking out the window toward the jagged sawtooth range of the Bitterroot Mountains. Then the video cuts to black. And then we, we read this part about if Willie's claim was true, a crime against humanity had been committed by the U.S. government and then covered up. It was the full story. If the full story weren't told, millions of more Lyme patients would suffer. So that's the video clip that Chris Newby was sent by her research fellow. Um, and we read more of the context. That's where we started um, when we started reading the book here. So we are going to jump ahead now to page 114 and 115, reading from Bitten by Chris Newby, a book that came out in uh, 2019, I believe. And uh, we'll just confirm that. 
Copyright 2019 by Chris Newby. So relatively recent book. And I'm going to read from page 114 to page 115. And we are about possibly halfway through our reading for today. Um, you're watching the TylerBlair.com BioSciWar stream. And today we're on BioSciWar TikTok Up. The tiktok orations the tiktok operation the tiktok bio op p2 and uh not the p2 that you might be thinking of but part two of the six part series thus far and uh today we last time we wanted to get into reading this book um maybe you can kind of see why i've been kind of getting to the point where i have now where i'm finally actually reading the book we did need a little bit of contextual information I am just kind of checking a few things in the production here to make sure that we're still online. Everything's looking good. Sorry, guys, I'm not really uh, into being able to read the questions today. Uh, greetings, Stephanie. Thank you for chiming in. I appreciate your commentary and always uh, your viewership. And just knowing that somebody's chatting there helps me know that the stream is still going. So I really appreciate that. Okay, so reading from the top of the book here. My voice is still doing, from the top of the page here, my voice is still doing okay today. So we will continue on. Uh, from page 114. I knew that this was the last interview I'd get with Willie before his Parkinson's disease robbed him of his ability to speak. My last chance to convince uh, him to share his secrets. Since Gray interviewed six months ago, his health has degraded significantly. I took a few deep breaths uh, to calm my nerves. Over the previous weeks, sorry, I'm adjusting my equipment. Over the previous weeks, I settled on an interview strategy that I thought might work. I would engage the scientific part of his brain in answering my, my two questions. Why the Lyme discovery files were missing from the National Archives? and why images of the organism labeled Swiss agent were located in the archive folders in the time frame where there would expect the Lyme Spirikits pictures to be. Could this mysterious Swiss agent, which has never been mentioned in any publications associated with the Lyme outbreak, also be a biological weapon? As a few warm-up questions, after a few warm-up questions, I started asking specifics about the ticks and the patent blood samples collected around the time of the discovery. He told me that in the late 1979, he had tested over 100 ticks from Shelter Island, located about 20 miles from, Lyme, from the Lyme outbreak, and all about two had an unidentified Rickettsia species inside. It looked like Rickettsia montana, now called Rickettsia montananensis, under a microscope a non-disease-causing cousin of the deadly Rickettsia rickettsi, but it was diff a different species. He said that similar Rickettsia had also been found in Lone Star ticks, and that there had been quite a bit of, quote, excitement, unquote, over the discovery. I kept asking Willie about the mysterious Rickettsia, but his answers were garbled, and all I could glean from him was that he had stopped investigating it for reasons unknown. Now, so this is the last interview. Um, this is uh, from Newbie, I believe, interviewed him. I may be wrong about that, but we'll go with that for now until I can clarify. And <coughs> continuing on, 
on page 115, you said that there had not, you say they're not looking for it anymore, I asked. They probably paid people off, he said. They are folks up there who have a way to enable that, unquote. Next, I showed Willie an unlabeled image of a microbe and asked him what it was. Quote, that is a Swiss agent, unquote, said Willie. I asked him a series of questions on the microbe, and he recited what seemed like a well-rehearsed lines. The Swiss agent is a Rickettsia montana-like organism found in the European sheep tick exodes rickinus, and, and it doesn't cause disease in humans. Then I asked him why he brought samples of it from Switzerland back to his lab. He replied with a response that he often used when he seemed to know the answer, but wasn't going to divulge it. Question mark, he said. I shifted to discussing the research he'd supervised at the Naval Medical Research Unit 3, called NAMRU-3, in Cairo, Egypt, Cairo, Egypt, a facility that worked on tick and bioweapons-related research. I was doing things that the Nazis used to be doing, Willie said. What kind of stuff? Working on the suspicion for fleas, suspension for fleas, determining how many of the quantity and genetic material in fleas can be used. Will, unquote. Willie paused, unable to find the words to finish. Quote, so you're putting plague into fleas then? Unquote. Yeah, he said. What else were you doing? I asked page 116 increasing the fertility of female ticks to produce larger quantities of eggs how would you do that play soft music pour them wine unquote willie laughed and said quote didn't find anything unquote quote okay who do you increase the how do you increase the fertility of ticks unquote he mumbled something i couldn't decipher and then said quote the russians unquote Quote, the Russians did the Russian, did the Russians ask you to do this? Quote, unquote, I asked. Quote, they, uh, unquote, Willie paused and carried on. Apparently, it says so. We never know, unquote. I had no idea how to interpret that answer, so I continued. Quote, what else, unquote? Quote, Colorado tick fever virus, a mild disease. They found it produced a mild infection, unquote. If this virus were being developed as a bioweapon, it could have been harmless. Its intention, its initial symptoms included fever, chills, headaches, pain behind the eyes, light sensitivity, muscle pain, generalized malaise, abdominal pain, hypo, uh, hepotestamegaly, <laughs> swollen liver and spleen, nausea and vomiting, and a flat pimply rash. Contemplations could include meningitis, encephalitis, and hemorrhagic fever, but these were still, but these were rare. Still, it didn't sound quote mild unquote to me. I then asked him what the goal of these tests was. Quote: The viruses lowers the antigen unquote. Antigens are molecules on the outer surface of an invading microbe that the body recognizes as foreign providing a signal that the invasion is underway. Theoretically, if a virulent bacteria genetic code were mixed with a virus that caused a mild infection, or if both microbes were loaded into a single tick, 
physicians would have recognized the physical symptoms of the novel infection and it might not show up on a standard antibody-based screening test. I checked with Willie to see if my theory was correct. Quote, the virus lowers the antigen so you can test for it, unquote. Quote, that is it, he said. Quote, so you are saying if you infected an enemy population, they wouldn't be able to figure out what was wrong, unquote. Quote, yeah, unquote. Two hours into the interview, Willie started to freeze in the middle of sentences and slurred his words, signs that his diabetes was out of control. I had to get him home for his insulin shot before he passed out. He, he wa As we walked arm in arm across the hotel lobby, he described how he f felt to have Parkinson's disease. Quote, I see a pebble on the sidewalk and I stop and my brain can't figure out how to walk around it. Unquote. Ever the gentleman, he held the inn's front door open in front of me. Even though he was wobbled outside, I was afraid he'd slip on the ice in the parking lot. After I dropped him at his home, I went back to the inn to review my notes and think about the interview. First, I drew some conclusions about the, his mental state. Though he was having trouble speaking and word-finding, I didn't think he was delusional or making things up. My gut said that he truly felt a lot of the th um, resolved guilt. He truly felt a lot of unresolved guilt about the bioweapons experiments he conducted, especially his work putting Colorado tick fever virus in ticks. Later, I reviewed the video many times and did my best to um, accurately interpret and transcribe what he was saying. It was frustrating that he still wouldn't disclose any key details, the who, the what, the where of the alleged bioweapons accident. He offered more than pieces of the puzzle, but for an unknown reason he was holding back the whole story. He was worried about the legal ramifications of leaking the military information. During the summer of 2013, the plight of the two high-profile whistleblowers, former CIA analyst Edward Snowden and ex-Army intelligence analyst Bradley Manning had Bradley Chelsea Manning had been all over the news. Snowden was facing a maximum of 30 years in jail for fines leaking the classified intelligence and defense information. Manning had just received a 35-year prison sentence for providing more than 700,000 classified documents to WikiLeaks. Willie probably couldn't help noticing the message that came with all these sentences. Leak classified information and you go to jail. All I could do now was run with the clues that I had been given. The Swiss agent, the Colorado tick fever virus, the mass production of ticks, and the Russians. I left the interview with a verbal confirmation that Willie had worked with tick-borne bioweapons, and I still wasn't sure about the significance of, of the mystery rickettsia found in ticks during the Lyme outbreak. It could be that Willie truly believed what he, that it was a harmless to humans and that he and his colleagues had ignored its presence and kept looking for another cause. But Willie's body language made me think that he was hiding something. I still needed something more to help me make sense of the story. So that was her interview with Willie Bergdolfer. And uh, you can see there that, again, he, he didn't, like, come out and admit it that, that that's what was going on, right, with the um, ticks and the research that he was doing. But there was some interesting information that we can glean from the two interviews there. Um, now, okay, here's the picture of that eight ball. That's interesting. I did have this marked off.
uh, the eight ball. There's a whole chapter on the eight ball here. We've already talked about that today a little bit. So from 145 to 146, reading from Bitten, uh, skipping ahead here. William Patrick III, head of the a producer development at Fort Detrick Bioweapons pro Program, Patrick had told McCleary that America's first deployable incapacitating biological weapon was an aerosolized mix of toxins, a virus, and a bacterium designed to create a prolonged period of incapacitation across the population. The first component of Staphylococcal enterotoxin B, or SEB, was a toxic waste product of a bacterium that caused food poisoning in 2 to 12 hours. Those who had breathed it in would come down with the chills, headaches, muscle pain, coughing, and fever, as high as 106 degrees. The second component, Venezuelan equine influenzatic virus, encephalitis virus, would, in five days, cause a high fever and weakness and fatigue lasting for weeks. The third component, Q fever, would cause debilitating flu-like symptoms for weeks to months, including fever, chills, fatigue, and muscle pain. Q fever could be chronic and sometimes even fatal. When exposed to this germ cocktail mass-produced at the Pine Bluff Arsenal in Arkansas, theoretically few people would die, but it would put a significant percentage of the population out of commission, making an invasion easier. And no city infrastructure would be harmed. Later, Henry Kissinger questioned how non-lethal these weapons could be, and Riley noted that while they be non-lethal, only for someone with two nurses. Patrick went on, <laughs> that, that would be an interesting um, note to go look up and see where K Henry Kissinger said that. Patrick went on to say that the lethal, non-contagious bioweapons had been needed, the United States' first choice would have been a mixture of tolomeria with SEB toxin deployed in a small dry particle. This mixture delivered a massively or, quote, overwhelming, unquote, dose, doses would shrink the incubation time for both agents and create an inflammatory storm within the body, one that would kill those at the center of the delivery within 18 hours. He stressed that such a combination weapon would not manifest as an immune, as an immediately recognizable natural disease. McClary heard many of these stories while he was hanging out with Patrick at his home in Maryland, and he was present when Patrick, shortly before the death from cancer in 2010, built a large fire in his backyard and started burning a cache of bioweapons documents. Quote, any records of the open-air biological tests still around, unquote, I asked. Quote, yes, they exist, especially for the three open-air tests for telomeria in the South Pacific and Alaska, but they are classified. I never read them, unquote. Then I told him about the Swiss bank account receipts found in Willie's garage. He paused to consider the implications. Quote, how much was in the account, unquote. Quote, I don't know. I have several withdrawal slips, each tens of thousands of dollars. That was a lot of money in the 70s, unquote. Quote, wow, that's very interesting, he said, unquote. Or 
Yeah, I believe, as to several other former U.S. officials who I respect, that the biological weapons program was penetrated by the Soviets, just as was the Manhattan Project. Willie had also told a friend that the Russians stole a virulent strain from his lab, and Willie told me during the interview that the Russians are in trouble. But what exactly would they be in, why exactly would they be in trouble, McCleary asked. Quote, I don't know, but these are two hot spots of Borrelia burgdorferi in the U.S., Connecticut, and the Great Lakes region. So do you think that the real story is that the Russians unleashed this back on us, he asked? That can't be ruled out. Unquote. McCleary shook his head from the side to side. Quote, if your theory were true, they'd come after you. You'd have no idea. Even suggesting that the Russians and Soviets unleashed a biologic weapon upon the U.S. would have immense international repercussions, unquote. I felt, I suddenly felt like a chess student being scolded by a, a grad master for making a stupid mistake for not being able to see six moves ahead. Quote, look at my eyes, unquote, he said. I stopped taking notes and looked up. At that moment, the face of Kennedy, the assassinated president, came into focus on the screensaver behind him. He said, quote, you're not going to believe me when I say this, but if it is true and you can prove your thesis, this is get killed stuff. This is dangerous shit, unquote. All right. So add back my bookmark, and we'll read ahead now on page one, actually going back to page 130 and 131. Okay, later he told them, so this is uh, from the chapter Smoking Gun. This is an important section uh, that I'm going to read into the record. Later he told them that the government officials had, ha, officials had visited him twice to question his research about missing agents. Lundolfer had heard about the investigations through the mutual friend, and soon after he called me to see if I wanted to review Willie's documentation before they were sent to the university for archiving, a process that can take months to years. So I booked a flight to Utah, bringing along my husband Paul to help photograph the documents. For two days, we dug into the boxes of Willie's lab notebooks slides, research reports, and a tattered brown file folder labeled Dietrich 1954-56. This folder was stuffed with faded carbon copies of letters documenting Willie's bioweapons work, infecting fleas, mosquitoes, and ticks with lethal agents. There were reports of a plague-laden flea experiments, and they confirmed that Willie had told me in the last what Willie had told me in our last 2013 interview. Letters and reports detailed his efforts to infect mosquitoes to deliver lethal doses of Trinidad agent and deadly strains of yellow fever virus extracted from the liver of diseased persons. Lindofer had also found some deposit slips from two different Swiss bank accounts tucked into the stack of unrelated documents. The real, quote, smoking gun, unquote, though, was Willie's handwritten lab notes on the patent blood test on the patient blood tests from the disease outbreak in Connecticut. These tests showed the proof of the presence of the named, quote, Swiss Agent USA, unquote, the mysterious rickettsia present in the most of the patents patients from the original Lyme disease outbreak, a fact that was never disclosed in the journal articles. It didn't take a PhD in microbiology to see that almost all the pa patient blood 
had reacted strongly to an antigen test for a European rickettsia that Willie had called the Swiss agent. Even more surprising, all the work was done in 1978, about two years before Willie, the lead author published the article reporting that the spirochete was the only cause of Lyme disease. Camera got a little crooked there. So there's the smoking gun, right? All right, let's uh, see how far we can cruise. Actually, what I'm going to do, we're going to come back to this possibly today, possibly next week. I am going to switch gears a little bit. Now we're going to come back and we're going to continue the reading of this at some point or where needed. I know we've done quite a bit today and I don't want to over stress the situation or the point. <clears throat> but here on page, uh, if I can find the damn page. Yeah, we'll come back to this part. There, There is more that I want to read into that. Now, I'm going to put my pen so I don't forget. So, again, what we just, to summarize what we just read, Willie Bergdofer was doing tests for Fort Detrick, Maryland, for the Navy, uh, for different factions of the U.S. military, um, trying to find different biological weapons agents that could be put inside of ticks and spread around using ticks. One um, agent that Willie thinks may be causing the Lyme disease is known as the Swiss agent, which he then identified as being inside of the patients of the uh, victims that were having an outbreak in Lyme, Connecticut. The same spirochete um, that we were reading about in connection with possibly uh, uh, Unit 731 and those connections are going to come up more later, but it's possible that that was some of the information that was garnered from the uh, exchange done between Japan and in the United States after World War II, after learning about the Unit 731 and the Japanese Holocaust, essentially, that had gone on there. In World War II, uh, there were, there's some evidence that I have that shows a link between those two uh, factions, or basically that the research that came out of that experimentation that was done to the people of Japan and then us importing that information and continuing the research with uh, Nazi scientists and then also um, people like Willy Bergdofer, who the actual, uh, the, you know, he, he does go down in history, but a lot of his information was classified and all we have is these pieces. And then we have the book from Chris Newby, Bitten, that we've been reading from that goes into a lot more depth that spurred and sparked the House of Representatives member there, Chris, uh, somebody, I forget his name, to actually call for an investigation into the Pentagon, which then got sidelined as like, oh, we don't really have the time for all that right now. Um, the next thing I'm going to go into here is a, it's a, it's a section from a piece written by a person named Ellen Cook, and it's highly referenced, and I found this in addition to the research that I've been doing and it's it's good contextual information. I am going to take a break with my voice, and I'm going to actually let a robot read again to us. I, I don't feel like that went too bad last week, honestly, but that's probably because I listen to a lot of material that's not even like official audiobook. Like I take these books and things that I'm reading to you today, these documents, and I, I'll listen to them as, as well as read them. Um, so I'm used to robot voices reading. I, I, can, I can jive with that. So I'll 
see how it goes and listen back to this, but it gives me a chance to take a break while still like keeping the information flowing into the stream. So the podcasts can be more succinct, more complete, include more information and not have like a limitation like, oh man, I'm, I need to take a break real quick. Well, this I can take a quick break and we'll go ahead and let this read into the record. It's uh, called Spirochete Warfare by Ellen Cook. And uh, let's see how this goes. We will do it live. Spirochete Warfare by Elena Cook Introduction Borrelia, the microbes which cause Lyme disease, are a subtype of the wider biological classification of spirochetes. Now it has become apparent that the spirochetes were weaponized over 75 years ago. That knowledge comes to us from a book published in 1944. The title of the book is Japan's Secret Weapon, by Barclay Newman a leading science writer of the time, as well as former U.S. Navy malaria scientist. For decades the public health agencies of the U.S. and other NATO countries have denied the existence of virulent cell wall-deficient forms of spirochetes. The lack of a cell wall renders microbes resistant to penicillin and related antibiotics, as these work precisely by disrupting the formation of new cell walls during bacterial replication. The minute size and pleomorphic nature of these forms, in contrast to the striking spiral shape of a typical spirochete as featured in modern microbiology textbooks, made these microbes appear invisible, above all to those who did not wish, or did not wish others, to see them. This WW2 era book helps to confirm what some investigating the history of Lyme disease have long suspected, that the official denial of the devastating pathogenic nature of the granule and other L forms, one, of Lyme causing Borrelia, is related to their biological warfare significance. To put it bluntly, Newman's book provides cogent circumstantial evidence that many cell wall deficient forms of Borrelia are in fact weaponized spirochetes, nurtured, cultured and optimized for aerosol delivery. The following essay is based on the information in Chapter 4 of Newman's book. The title of the chapter is simply Spirochete Warfare. Background for many decades it was assumed that the horrors of the Second World War did not include the use of biological weapons. Finally, in the 1980s, thanks to the diligent efforts of historians and investigative journalists, the barbaric crimes of the Japanese Unit 731 were revealed to the general public. Unit 731 and related units practiced mass medical experimentation, including the cutting open of living human beings who endured grotesque surgical operations without anesthetic. Often the purpose was to observe directly the hemorrhaging and other changes in the organs of the victim, man, woman, or child, as he or she died in agony from a deliberately induced infectious disease. As well as human experimentation, the Japanese scientists launched attacks with plague and other weapons of mass destruction, killing many thousands of Chinese and other victims. The true death toll of these atrocities is not yet known outside of classified circles. Though the U.S. government has long denied it, not only were they fully aware of the Japanese and Nazi biowarfare programs, but also, incredibly, after the war, they protected the architects of these programs of death from prosecution as war criminals. This was in order to recruit them for the American biological weapons program against the Soviet bloc, which they duly did. We now know, for example, 
that the U.S. allowed leading Nazi bioweaponeer Eric Traub to play a major role in setting up research at their biowarfare lab on Plum Island, a stone's throw away from Lyme, Connecticut, where the first recorded outbreak of Lyme disease in America occurred in the 1970s. Traub's germ warfare knowledge was considered so important that, his Nazi past notwithstanding, he was invited to take charge of scientific research on the island in the 1950s. Like Traub, Japanese biowarfaremen were similarly greeted with open arms, their wartime atrocities hushed up. In return for their cooperation, the U.S. allowed these monsters to occupy some of the most prestigious and influential posts in Japanese medicine, till their retirement decades later. Newman's Fear During the war, Barclay Newman, leading science writer and former malariologist with the U.S. Navy became aware that the Japanese were building up a program of deadly biological weaponry. Desperate to warn his countrymen of what he believed was an impending Armageddon, he wrote a book entitled Japan's Secret Weapon. At the time, the American military authorities wanted to ban his book, but later decided that to do so would call too much attention to the very issues they considered it necessary to cover up. Instead they resorted to arranging a smear campaign against the author, and unfavorable reviews dismissing Newman's revelations as alarmist fantasy were published in the press. Today, thanks to the efforts of leading historians, we know that Newman's fears regarding a Japanese biological program of mass destruction were soundly based, and indeed, one of the most authoritative works on the history of biowarfare Unit 731 relies on information found in Newman's book, too. Japan's secret weapon contains no less than 28 pages on one aspect of the Japanese bioweapon program, Spirochete Warfare. Newman begins his chapter of the same name by lamenting the widespread disbelief, in his era, of the true devastating potential of germ warfare. He then alleges that two to three years before Pearl Harbor, Nazi and Japanese scientists cooperated in warfare against or with spirochetes, in Hawaii. Original Authors Italics what he is referring to is an exceptionally virulent outbreak of the spirochetal disease leptospirosis, also known as Weil's disease, and known at the time in Germany as slime fever. With official reports of 44% mortality from the outbreak, Newman states, Consult the authorities, and you will find out that, very definitely, so high a mortality is attained only by Japanese strains of spirochetes of slime fever. In his characteristic tongue-in-cheek style, Newman goes on to say the following. Suppose you consult a spirochete specialist in his laboratory at an institute devoted to research on tropical diseases. This specialist is busy, of course. But not so busy as he ought to be or as he will be later, it is difficult, even for an expert technician, to catch and recognize a spirochete, the specialist informs you. So here are some pictures from the gallery of the world's worst rogues. Newman goes on to describe a picture of a typical syphilis spirochete, in a manual offered by the hypothetical spirochetologist to the reader, and then says. Bacterium, you ask? No, according to the Japanese, who know the most about spirochetes, they are like bacteria in being low forms of plant life, that is, fungi. The Japanese claim that spirochetes are closely related to bacteria but are not bacteria, among which spiral forms are found. Like bacteria, spirochetes reproduce by splitting across the middle. 
but the Japanese think that a spirochete can also break itself into many tiny granules, each as small as the invisible molecule of a virus, and each capable of recreating a new spirochete. Bacteria do not seem to multiply in this odd way, the Japanese say that there is no drug effective against this spirochete. Emphasis mine. It is important to bear in mind that these words were written at the dawn of the antibiotic era. Today many patients who have been lucky enough to receive a correct diagnosis of their Lyme disease have been cured, or had their symptoms alleviated, by modern therapeutic agents. The imaginary spirochetologist goes on to explain that much of the research on spirochetes current at that time, and even the manuals in use by U.S. forces and the public health service, are based on Japanese findings. In Newman's scenario, the reader goes on to examine pictures of syphilis, Borrelia, and other spirochetes, in the U.S. military manual, all originating from Japanese drawings. You find out that Anata and Ito were the great investigators of the spirochetes of slime fever. When you peer closely at the dainty Japanese pictures of this spirochete, you perceive that, although at first sight it seems to be a chain of bright dots, it is really a slender thread whose spiraling gives the impression of beating. The thread is curved or hooked at one or both ends. The living spiral propels itself by rotary motion of the hook, as the Japanese discovered. Newman then describes how the work of Heidi Anaguchi, acclaimed worldwide for his discovery of the syphilis spirochete as the cause of general paresis in 1913, was continued in Japanese labs. Japanese technicians took a hint from Naguchi and forced the spirochete to multiply on special jellies. The Japanese have reported that you can increase the virulence, or killing power, of these spirals by growing them in flesh and blood, of guinea pig or man. Emphasis mine. It is useful to remember at this point that the difficulty in culturing spirochetes using normal, ethical methods, was not just a pitfall of WW2-era technology. The resistance of many spirochetes, including Borrelia, to culture in vitro remains a problem for lab scientists even today. In Japan, vaccines for prophylaxis have long been in use. But non-Japanese workers cannot make such vaccines. None but the Japanese seems to know how to use spirochete vaccines to prevent the spread of an epidemic. Newman goes on to discuss the Japanese discoveries of spirochetal agents of nonakayami, seven-day fever, and Akiyami, autumn fever, and then, referring to one of the original discoverers of the causative agent of leptospirosis, states. Inada has reported that the Japanese know how to get virus-like, quite invisible particles or spirochete fragments from special cultures of spirochetes of infectious jaundice. The Japanese say that such infinitesimals can be used to infect animals and men, by spraying droplets containing these spirochete-creating bits into the air or spreading them through water, or scattering them in mud or damp soil. Emphasis mine. Newman then discusses the prevalence of leptospirosis worldwide, and his imaginary spirochete expert notes. Immediately before the Japanese invasion of China, Indochina, the Dutch East Indies, and the Malay states, and shortly before the Japanese invasion of India and the Japanese strokes at Australia, the very first outbreaks of slime fever were reported from every one of these areas. After an enigmatic discussion about American and British outbreaks of leptospirosis, and the tick-borne disease tularemia in the U.S., the latter Newman's scientist describes as having somehow gotten accidentally from Japan, the reader, 
in the hypothetical discussion, asks about antibiotics. Why can't sulfa drugs be used? Simply because they have no effect on the spirochetes. What about penicillin? The newspapers say that penicillin is effective where other miracle drugs fail. That's an enthusiastic way of telling you that penicillin is effective against certain infections caused by bacteria which are not influenced by sulfa drugs. As the Japanese have pointed out, spirochetes are not bacteria. And just to give you some idea of the distance to a cure-all, the Japanese actually grow dysentery bacilli and other bacteria in cultures saturated with sulfa drugs. In this way they get strains which are not only more virulent but completely resistant to sulfa drugs. Other bacteria not affected by the most miraculous new synthetics are those of tuberculosis and leprosy. For the worst plagues there are as yet no drugs at all. They i.e. the Japanese find spirochetes especially fascinating. And they never give up. In 1940, Masao Mujimurai reported new successes in transmitting syphilis spirochetes from cultures grown for many years in the laboratories of Tokyo Imperial University, doubtless the very cultures started in a small way by Naguchi. Fujimori, sick, was testing out the effects of spreading two different parasites into the same guinea pig at the same time. The Japanese discovered that one parasite promotes the lethal action of the other. He demonstrated that diphtheria bacilli are more virulent when used along with syphilis. Sometimes the Japanese think up the damnedest experiments, such as the transmission of syphilis by spraying the spirochetes into the air or into the eyes of animals or volunteers. Infection is thus accomplished. Japanese technicians have been not only the outstandingly successful cultivators of spirochetes and many other very deadly germs but also the sole successful mass producers of the most dangerous and horrible microbes, some of the apparently fantastic claims of new methods of transmission by Japanese specialists have been investigated and their truth established in American laboratories years after the claims were first made. Therefore, if you want to speculate further about the possibilities of spirochete warfare, you can be sure that the Japanese know how to spread any spirochete disease, slime fever, syphilis, yas, sodoku, 3, relapsing fever, by spraying droplets laden with specially cultured spirochetes. So they do not have to drop infected fleas, rats or even leopards from planes, as suggested by popular writers. Relapsing fever is caused by the Borrelia genus of bacteria, and is generally transmitted to man either by lice, or by the bite of a tick. It is worth noting, too, that recent investigations into the genetic makeup of Lyme Borrelia have found some strains apparently more closely related to relapsing fever Borrelia than to Borrelia burgdorferi, long considered the only Borrelia capable of causing Lyme disease. The spirochetologist continues. It would cost only a few thousand yen, possibly only a few yen if you pieced out the work in homes to produce enough spirochetes to infect a nation or even a continent. As to methods of broadcasting spirochetes secretly so as to avoid detection and reprisal, you yourself can probably list hundreds of different furtive techniques if you put your mind on the problem, such broadcast spirochetes and super spirochetes bred to order would stay alive in dust, water, damp soil, mud, food. And none would be the wiser. Cases and epidemics would not break out until the enemy had been gone for days, weeks, or even months. The conversation continues. Are spirochetes really doing any significant killing anywhere? 
Slime fever kills its thousands, syphilis and yaws their tens of thousands, and spirochete relapsing fever its hundreds of thousands if not its millions. Hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, where? In Africa today, where it is spread among tens of millions by ticks, lice and bedbugs. The spirochete of relapsing fever is almost as important a killer as malaria and trypanosomiasis, or sleeping sickness, the spirochete virulence varies widely, only a small percent may succumb, but in a few epidemics the mortality has attained 75 percenter. In West Africa in a recent epidemic extending through several years, probably 10 percenter of the entire population was killed off by spirochetes running wild from Morocco and Algiers down the Niger to Senegal and the French Sudan, southward to the Gold Coast and Nigeria. Perhaps a million natives died in this one epidemic. Newman's spirochetologist then suggests that the tropical spirochetal disease yaws would be an even more likely candidate for dissemination by the Japanese, due to the fact that apart from flies, the disease may be spread by contact with infected objects and any direct contact with a sufferer. He describes how, after an incubation period of a few weeks, yaws causes joint pains, digestive disturbances, headache, fever and a skin nodule surrounded by a ring of inflammation. A few months later further sores break out and the headache and joint pains intensify. The symptoms are recurrent and in the late stages the victim suffers horrific deformity of his face as the spirochetes rot the bones of the nose, palate and eye. The spirochetologist reassures the reader that a deliberate dissemination of yaws in temperate climates could be controlled by modern hygiene measures and drugs. Asked why yaws and other epidemics were not controlled in the Philippines, Given that disease and not the Japanese beat us in the Philippines, the scientist simply shrugs. Such an oversight is out of my province. How many lives would you say such an oversight has cost? Hundreds of thousands of lives and millions of casualties in the Philippines alone, within a space of a very few years, say five. Newman's scientist discusses, with more than a dollop of cynicism, the fact that recent efforts by U.S. scientists to duplicate experiments in the culture of yaws and syphilis spirochetes published by Noguchi and his successors have failed. Now we find that no spirochetes develop in such jellies, even though the Japanese directions are followed painstakingly. Essential information must have been withheld by the Japanese. Nevertheless, it is difficult to believe that Noguchi would in his magnificent benevolence countenance such secrecy. Noguchi had a world view. The chapter concludes with a discussion of Sodoku, and the fact that Japanese researchers had found these microbes in the noses of lepers in India, even though it is normally acquired not by the airborne route, but by the bite of an animal. The Japanese reported that these bacteria were then able to infect volunteers. Newman, referring to biowarfare as oligodynamic warfare, concludes his chapter on spirochetes with the following chilling words. In oligodynamic warfare, pygmies amok may loose the thunderbolts of the gods. Lyme disease, like that other spirochetal disease, syphilis, is known as a great imitator. It is believed to be able to mimic dozens of conditions, including amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, attention deficit disorder, multiple sclerosis, autism, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and many more. Recent evidence has even linked it with the devastating plague of Alzheimer's. 4, 5. Could we, in the 21st century, 
be witnessing the shocking legacy of attempts to unleash the thunderbolts of the gods. Japan's Secret Weapon by Barclay Newman was published by Current Publishing Co., New York in 1944. At the time of writing, November 2008, it is still available to the public at various online booksellers, at prices ranging from $25 to $100. 6. Elena Cook can be contacted at the following email address. elena444cook at yahoo.co.uk References 1L forms are variants of bacteria lacking a cell wall. The L refers to the Lister Institute where they were studied in the 19th... Okay, I'll save you from having to hear the actual references being read by the robot, but that will be linked up in the show notes with two different posts, with that one there that I found in archive. Now, that person that wrote that article was referring to a book that I have pulled up here. The book was called uh, Japanese uh, Japan's Secret Bio Weapon from 1944. I don't have a copy of that, but it looks like it's achievable. I'm not sure how hard it would be to get a uh, first edition, but it looks like ABE Books also has a copy of that that I could try to get. Um, and then the person from the article there was, again, uh, Elena Cook. And if you do a search for Spiral Key Warfare, Elena Cook, you know, the first thing you're going to get up is like a Facebook post. And so when I had first read that, I was like seeing it on Facebook and I was like, I don't know like what this is. Um, okay, so I just searched it and I guess it's not the first result. It was before though. There was like a Facebook post, but this is basically just pasted in here, that same article. Um, and then they reference it back to here, which was not there. So I went and archived that, archive orged that and found copies of that article and I'll link that in the show notes and you can read through. She was uh, uh, summarizing a chapter from Japan's secret weapon from 1944, where they were also researching spirochetes and spirochete warfare and had uh, done testing with that in unit 731. So that's what we were talking about just before that. Now, interestingly enough, while like literally I pressed you know, play on that. I turned around. My son walks in the room and he hands me a couple packages. All right. One of, one of the packages has some audio routing cables that I needed. Okay. This is a instrument cable, uh, balanced, <laughs> uh, TRC cable or something like that. And this will go from my amp to my mixer and more on that to come someday. Maybe. And then I, I always buy two cables. Like when I buy cables, I'm like, if that doesn't work, I'll buy another one just in case that one works. And then I'll have a spare. Now, that's not the exciting thing. The exciting thing that showed up is Gene Wars, Military Control Over the New Genetic Technologies from Charles Pillar and Keith R. Yamamoto. Now, if you remember, last week I was making a mistake and I actually kept referring to a 1988 book. Well, this is the 1988 book that I was actually trying to re recall. So Gene Wars, uh, Military Control Over New Genetic Technologies, 
is a book that I've heard referenced a lot in doing this research, so I figured I better get that book. And I have not read it all the way through. I've not listened to it all the way through. But the fact that it showed up as soon as I turned around, I was able to go in and actually mark up a few sections. So we will go more into this book in the future, but let's just read a little bit about what it's about. So this penetrating investigation reveals the extent of the efforts by the executive branch and Department of Defense to develop military capacity and infectious organisms. Pillar and Yamamoto have unearthed and organized information normally unavailable to the layperson, physicians and medical scientists. It should be read not only by physicians, medical researchers, biologists, and environmentalists, but by anyone concerned with their long-range health and welfare of our children and our planet. That was from Jonathan King, Ph.D., Department of Biology, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Charles Pillar is an investigative journalist. It's probably like PR or something. I'm just going to say Pillar. <coughs> whose articles on biological warfare, science, labor, and international affairs have appeared in magazines and newspapers across the country, including The Nation, The Los Angeles Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, and The Baltimore Sun. He lives in Oakland, California. Keith Yamamoto, a, mo a molecular biologist who earned a Ph.D. degree from Princeton University, is a professor and a vice chairman of the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics at the University of California in San Francisco. He lives in San Francisco, California. So this book, Gene Wars, Military Control Over the New Genetic Technologies, was written in 1988. And we'll just read a little bit into the introduction here, since this literally just showed up in the mail like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> in June 1989, the years of painstaking lab experiments finally pay off. Soviet molecular biologist at top secret research institutes. Can't find my pointer, huh? Oh, it's in the other book. Uh, at top research institutes in the Siberian city of Novosibirsk, successfully employed genetic engineering techniques to create novel disease organisms. A super pathogenic strain of dengue fever, a viral disease epidemic to tropical areas around the world. The new organism is codenamed D7, a classified Soviet document from page 14, leaked by a dissident scientist, compares it with a normal dengue. D7 is a marvel, a sinister in ingenuity, ingenuity, <laughs> the perfect biological weapon. At first glance, it is indistinguishable from its natural parent, and even extended analysis writes off D7 as a product of natural mutation. Rapacious and fast-acting, it reliably incapacitates everyone in its path, rendering people helpless, but killing only a handful. Seems like something they often try to achieve with these biological weapons, huh? Norvenberks has come up with a D7 vaccine 100% effective in human trials. The Soviets waste little time. By late July... 
a refrigerated supply of the virus and several handheld biological fogging devices are secretly shipped via Cuba to Salvadoran FMLN rebels deep in the hills of north-central El Salvador. At 2 a.m. on July 31st, a small vaccinated commando squad creeps forward to the El Paricio's army base, a supply center at the northern region. They silently bathe the base in D7. Before dawn, they cover the covert raid is completed and the guerrillas steal back to mountain camps. And they all get very sick, I assume. Uh, but yeah, this book has a lot of interesting sections in it that I've already kind of thumbed through and noted as something that should be looked at. Um, but, you know, I realize that we're kind of... I'm getting a little bit all over the place if I jump into Gene Wars. So let's save Gene Wars for next week. We'll mix in Gene Wars readings uh, maybe next week or the week after. And, you know, we'll continue on with our Lab 257 and the Spyro Keats uh, research that we were just reading about, as well as the Operation Paperclip, Eric Traub, and the Nazis, and uh, the Nazi scientists that were brought in via Operation Paperclip to continue the study of biological weapons research and uh, vaccinations and all these other things, which are really just biological weapons. Um, now... Let's finish up with our book reading of Chris Newby, though, so that we can call it a good job done and we don't have to come back to it. Or not that we won't come back to it, but that I can feel like I did it justice today because was, this was sort of the money shot today, right? This was what we've been leading up to for the past few weeks of, you know, this is not just Tyler's crazy theory for those that are just now coming along. You know, what we're talking about is the current bio war ongoing plague pandemic C-19 and its most likely origins by the U.S. military. And, you know, the thing that I'm floating out there that might be more edgy is that it was an intentional release. And that's part of the bio war that we're currently living in. So from page 218 and 219 of Chris Newby's book, Bitten, Toward the end of my investigation, I re-examined the history of Lyme disease through the eyes of an arson investigator. Standing knee-deep in the ashes of a bioweapons program, the first thing I noticed was that the outbreak began early than most people realized in the late 1960s, when the military was conducting many open-air tests of aerosolized bacteria and aggressive lone star ticks. Polly Murray, the Connecticut mother who was first who first started documenting cases of Lyme disease, wrote that she first developed swollen knees and severe headaches in the spring of 1967, shortly after the virus disseminated the nearby Long Island duck industry, or decimated, sorry. When Murray visited her doctor and asked if her illness could have been caused by the ticks, he said, quote, Rocky Mountain spotter Spotted fever does not pres is not present with the kind of symptoms you're having, unquote. Alan Steer from L Yale University didn't begin investigating cause cases around old Lyme until 1975. And in the first article on Lyme arthritis, he noted that one man's symptoms started as early as 1968. Four more cases were identified 
in southeastern Connecticut beginning in 1972. Willie's involvement in the outbreak began in the summer of 1975 with a three-week trip to Nantucket, Cape Cod, and Martha's Vineyard. That year, nine people on Nantucket came down with the with babosis, babesiosis, and a few people on Martha's Vineyard fell ill with Rocky Mountain spotted fever. One person died. Willie's investigation was interrupted by his swish tick collecting trip in 1978, and upon his return he began analyzing Jorge Benach's Long Island ticks. Or it could be George Benach Long Island ticks. That's when he recognized that there was something different about the rickettsia he was seeing. Under a microscope, they looked like spotted fever rickettsias but they didn't show up on the standard test, and they didn't always cause the expedited pinprick rashes. These rickettsias caused a spot-free spotted fever. Why did Willie go on an NIH-funded Swiss sabbatical in the middle of a U.S. rickettsia outbreak? And why did the newly discovered Long Island rickettsia test positive to the European Swiss agent tests? Answers unknown. Based on the letters to Steer, Banach, and others in 1979. Hold on a sec here. I want to forget those. Willie seemed convinced that the new rickettsia could be caused, could be the causative agent of Lyme disease. Uh, this possibly was reflected in a project report from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIAID, for the period ending in 1930-1979. Only R. rickettsia has thus far been etologically associated with human illness, and indications are that the other three are a virulent for men as well as for experimental animals. Although tantalizing evidence based on serologic responses in residents from Long Island and California suggest an inapparent or missed infection may sometimes occur. There was nothing in the official NIH progress reports of 1979 and 1980 about the Long Island and Connecticut blood samples testing positive for European Swiss agent antigens. And in 1979 report, Willie wrote, quote, The Swiss agent is pathogenic to meadow voles, chick embryos, and several lines of tissue culture cells, but not for guinea pigs, a finding that contradicted later claims that, was, that it was harmless. Um, okay, so that's interesting. The Swiss agent and Mr. Bergdofer and his opinions about it there. We're going to keep going here and skip ahead to pages. Uh, just seeing if this was something I wanted to read. The meeting attendees were an international mix of biologists, okay, now, I'm going to jump ahead here, and I know today I've been just diving into spots in the book, and it's, you know, hard to keep up, potentially. So, 
what I would suggest to do is potentially just go grab the book and try reading it for yourself if you'd like the full context and watch some of the interviews with Chris Newby. But I hope we kind of round off here and are able to kind of drive the point home that we've been trying to build up to. Okay, so reading from page 229. I pondered why Lyme disease researchers were so much more paranoid than their rickettsia counterparts. Thinking back on my research for Lyme, the Lyme documentary Under Our Skin, I concluded that there was much more money at stake with Lyme disease. It was the first major new disease discovered after the Bay-Dole Act and the Diamond v. Chakrabarty Supreme Court decisions made. Uh, possibly for the NIH and the CDC, the universities to patent and profit from ownership of live organisms. Uh, sorry, so let me start uh, here in the next sentence. When the causative or, or organisms behind Lyme disease was announced, something akin to the Oklahoma land rush of 1989 began. As scientists within the industry began furi furiously filing patents on the surface proteins and the DNA of the Lyme spirochete, hoping to profit from the future vaccines and diagnostic tests that used these markers. For example, the NIH employee who patents the bacterial surface protein used in a commercial test kit or a vaccine could receive up to $150,000 in royalty payments a year, an amount that might double or double his or her annual salary. All of a sudden, the institutions that were supposed to be protectors of public health became business partners with Big Pharma. The university's researchers who had previously shared information on dangerous emerging diseases were now uh, displaying, uh, delaying publish, publishing and their findings so they could become entrepreneurs and profit from the patents from their university technology transfer groups. We essentially lost our system of scientific checks and balances, and this is in turn an undermined patent trust in institutions or starting again, and this, in turn, has undermined patient trust in the institutions that are supposed to, quote, do no harm, unquote. With Lyme disease, there's no profit incentive for proactively treating someone within a few weeks of inexpensive off-patent antibiotics. It's the patentable vaccines and mandatory tests before treatment that bring the steady revenue each year. Uh, year after year. So she's uncovering there, you know, why there could be cover-ups and there's probably a lot more to it than money and just being able to profit off of it. But she makes a good point there that's not, not hard for people to wrap their head around as far as uh, that goes. Um, now, one thing I don't want to miss before I jump into that, we may, we may read the epilogue, but is a quote here from Willie, and it says, it's now clear that the Borrelia burgdorferi can persist within the nervous system for years, causing progressive illness. And increasing evidence, and increasing evidence suggests also that the spirochete can remain latent there for years before producing clinical symptoms. Willie Burgdorfer, the brain involvement in Lyme disease.
And now we'll read the epilogue. And the quote at the top says, Your beliefs will be light by which you see, but they will not be what you see, and they will not be a substitute for seeing. Flanner O'Connor, Mystery of the Manners, Occasional Prose. I believe history will judge the tick-borne disease outbreak that began in 1968 as one of the worst public health failures of the last century. In the beginning, we were slow to recognize this triple threat, a situation that is now out of control, spreading far and wide, could have been contained with an early intervention of tick control projects and public education campaign. The myopic focus on only one of the tick diseases, Lyme disease, has led to treatment delays at and fatalities in patients with um, serious mixed infections. Physicians urgently need rapid screening tests and the freedom to use clinical judgment in treating these complex patient cases without the real and present danger of losing their medical licenses. What this book brings to light is that the U.S. military has conducted thousands of experiments exploring the use of ticks and tick-borne diseases as biological weapons, and in some cases these agents escaped into the environment. The government, the government needs to declassify the details of these open-air bioweapons tests so that they can bring repair to damages to the pathogens are inflicting on humans and animals in the ecosystem. She's right there, you know, you have to you have to accept what's been done in order to fix it. Otherwise, if you just keep shoving it under the rug, you'll never fix it, right? Where did this devil's brew of tick-borne disease come from? If you believe Willie Bergdolfer, and I do, there was a deliberate release or an accident, an experiment with unintended consequences to the environment. Yet after five years of research, I wasn't able to find verifiable documents confirming the Long Island incident. I'm not sure why Willie refused to fully disclose the details before his death. With his passing, the only way to know the truth is for a whistleblower to step forward or for a classified report to be released. It has been 50 years since the mysterious outbreak of tick-borne diseases began, and fixing it is going to require extraordinary efforts. We have an ecosystem out of balance, with the climate change enabling aggressive disease-carrying ticks to move into new territories. Our medical system is still reluctant to test for and treat Lyme disease and tick co-infections. No significantly or no significantly new diagnosis or treatment protocols have been introduced since Lyme disease was discovered, and our broken government is underfunded underfunding tick disease research. If the outbreak was caused by a U.S. accident, we need to, we need it exposed. If it was a hostile act by a foreign actor, then it shows how woefully unprepared we are for future attacks. My hope is that this book will widen the lens of our view of the problem and inspire people to more aggressively pursue solutions. We need CDC to streamline and bring more accuracy to our tick-borne disease surveillance system. We need more DNA detectives and to decode the genomes of these pathogens so we can devise a ways to disrupt the damages they do. We need 
epidemiologists to analyze the ongoing spread of these diseases, incorporating the possibility that they were spread in an unnatural way. We need, quote, big data, unquote, medical bioinformationists to analyze our electronic medical records to define diagnostic symptoms, profiles that map disease combinations and geographical locations. And finally, we need the next generation of bright, curious scientists to lead the charge. All right, so there we go. That's got us through the reading of today's book, Bitten. Now, I might take some issue with some of those things that were said as in the end there as far as like what we need to do. Um, I do believe with, with the writing of the book and spreading the information that those are things that we could be doing to help spread awareness about these issues, um, to help res resolve them, and also to not put our trust so much in the institutions that tell us, you know, how the current pandemic is unfolding and what the next steps are without asking more questions about, you know, where did this come from and how much information are they aware of about it and how much information, you know, is there uh, that, that, that these vaccines that are being proposed were not, you know, planned ahead of time. How do you plan ahead of time for vaccines that you didn't, you know, know that the pandemic was coming or did they? I don't know. Seems really strange with the Bill and Melinda Gates, like Event 201, Claydex, Johnson & Johnson, or, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, <laughs> slipping up a little bit there, but, uh, the, the, the interests that were involved in investigating pandemic, uh, preparedness and talking about how it would unfold, the whole Event 201 thing was like a whole played out scenario, um, where they're actually showing what could happen in this coronavirus outbreak from a coronavirus outbreak from pigs. And again, like, well, maybe they need to be doing those types of research with everything they know that's going on because it's quite evident that it could easily, there could be a bioweapons terror attack. And that's kind of the premise that I'm putting forward is that somebody else that's much deeper into these realms, you know, they thought, they've thought this through. And if they can get out in front of the attack, then they can control the outcomes. Um, but it still doesn't stop the fact now that all this research has been done and gain-of-function research on making chimera viruses and now is basically readily available to governments, to bad actors, to be able to just print out these bioweapons, like I've said before, not literally printing them out, but essentially making them in their garage, you know, homemade labs could be producing bioweapons which could incapacitate whole regions of people, you know, whole areas. And if you aerosolize those and are able to put them in the air or the water supply or something like that, you know, we're made to believe from the mainstream narrative that this is a, a virus that jumped from a, a, a animal species into humans and became extremely uh, virulent through that procedure. And that's not, you know, it's not to say that like disease or bacteria or things from animals can't make a human sick. They obviously can. Like if you look at uh, cats, cats carry around diseases and things that uh, people can get. Um, but to, all of a sudden to be there, this uh, highly infectious agent that spreads over the whole planet, right? This novel coronavirus that all the markers of it say that it was an engineered uh, bioweapon that was released intentionally to spread this way through it. And they aerosolized it itself, making a, a gain of function virus 
and either are are aerosolizing it and putting it in the air currently or that was done or it was you know put in subway i mean they have all these different ways that they could have released it near and around in china to set up china as the fall guy for this similar to how like they'll link saudi arabia documents back to funding of 9-11 terrorists or things like they'll, they'll they'll give the fallout to other countries being involved but they don't circle back to show you how it connects to directly into the u.s funding of biological weapons research um of course for defensive national security purposes you know and so today you know we've gone a little bit deep into the rabbit hole here of the bio war we're going to continue on though we're not going to stop there we're going to keep going down the rabbit hole here um there was plenty of articles that i wanted to go into that I'm going to save for the next episode. Um, but what I am going to do to close out today is we're going to go into a researcher who I've known, not like personally, but I've been around her online and kind of watched her work grow and definitely enjoyed her work over the years. And her name is Yana or J Jana Epps or ESP. And I had her website up here. Dang it. And I've lost it. Here it is. Um, her website is jennaesp.com. And the best way I could describe her is as an artist and a researcher. So she's able to take the research that she does and put it into an art form. And uh, just beautiful documentaries. Absolutely well done, well researched, well sourced. And I've uh, only become familiar with the recent series that she's doing tyranny and eugenics through public health bioterrorism and vaccines uh last week or so i came across episode nine i think i had saw episode one like some time ago and kind of didn't keep up with it for some reason and then recently i watched episode nine um i have been going through it this week obviously uh all props to anything that i uncover that comes out of you know viewing jenna's documentary and then i might take a clip or something that I found and put it in here, but me not rather than be like acting like, you know, I'm not doing that. I, I'm going to put this in my show notes. I want you guys to watch the whole series. I think she does a stand up blowout job at, you know, getting the information out there in a really creative way. And today we're going to watch uh, 30 minutes of part nine. So this is jumping way, 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 way ahead in the series. Um, and it's not meant to like encapsulate the series and be like, there it was guys, you saw it now. Cause there's a lot more. The idea is to sample. I want to give a sample kind of like you go to Costco, you know, and they give you a little sample when you go through, that's what we're doing now. We're not, we're just giving you a taste. You know, we could have some live viewers out there. Uh, according to the stats here, there's still some people watching, uh, good job guys. You've hung in there with the monotone reading and, uh, the, a little bit of cotton dry mouth here going on from all the reading today. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate you guys for sticking around. And this is going to be worth it for those that are interested in this type of research. We'll go into this clip. And I am going to, you know, then get up, stretch while this is playing, get the show ready to publish as an MP3. We put the show up, um, again, on a lot of various podcast places those with android phones can just use podcast addict and grab our rss feed but this goes out as an mp3 uh, to make it more easy for you to digest so i understand like people aren't going to sit and watch these longer episodes but what i'm 
sort of envisioning is that what they might like to do is download the audio, have it for on the go, being able to reference and hear. And, you know, if I don't expect everybody to be interested in biological weapons research or to, to dwell in the sewage, right? We don't want to do that. After this, I'm going to get up, go spend some time with my family. We're going to, you know, be decorating for the boys' birthdays next weekend. Uh, both the boys next weekend have a birthday uh, coming up. Dante will be turning four, or sorry, three, and Vinny will be turning 10. So big, big uh, numbers for both the boys coming up. I want to be able to get them the things they need. It's really important to us to celebrate the kids' birthdays and get them a lot of gifts and uh, do what we can, you know, while we still can. Uh, for for the family so yeah my focus isn't like every day living in this world of the bioterrorism's research right um now i can get a little fanatic about things and i use that to my ability to research and learn more and then help share with others so i don't see a, a problem with that i'm not using you know the the my ability to kind of deep dive into things to obsess over unhealthy things for me. I, I feel like, again, like Chris was saying there, like the more we expose this information, the more we can get it out into the general knowledge and that raise the consciousness of the events that have occurred. That's how we could potentially solve these things. So if there's, if there's a recombinant DNA, you know, mosquito viruses being sprayed all over us and we're all filled with all these things, like, well, if we keep ignoring that that's going on and that, you know, there very well could be nanotechnology inside of us, as we'll hear in this upcoming clip, and that, that that's what the spraying is or that's what this really, uh, even the illness could be caused by like cadmium being in the air. And a lot of the effects are very similar to like metal or toxicity effects, uh, losing the taste in your mouth and the smell and these things like that. Um, this could be an activation of frequencies in the environment, and we've been putting the soft metal tissues inside of us. Um, that's, again, a, sort of a farther out theory of mine, but I, I think that um, the jabs and all that, that's more of a consensual thing. That's more to move money around in the economy and basically a grand theft world type situation. But the abilities that they need, that people think they would need to inject you, that the ability is there inherently almost. Um, almost in a remote control type of way at this point, but inherently with the technologies that they've developed to be able to do various things uh, in a remote controlled way, let's say. We'll go into that more in the BioSci War. It definitely plays in. For now, we'll cut to tyranny and eugenics through the public health, bioterrorism, and vaccines part nine. In case I don't come back to comment after this, it's been great streaming with you guys today and getting uh, part six out here of the BioSci War. Um, we are in a sub part two of the TikTok operation, the Tokeration, the TikTok bio op part two from the BioSci War from TylerBloyer.com. Really appreciate you guys watching and enjoy this next clip. It'll be about a little bit longer of a clip, so just hang in there. Biochemist Dr. Garth Nicholson exposes how mycoplasma has been weaponized and how they are connected to the new emerging diseases. Neurodegenerative, autoimmune, respiratory, gastrointestinal, immunosuppressive disease disorders, chronic illnesses, and specifically CFS, autism, rheumatoid arthritis, Gulf 4 syndrome, and Lyme disease. 
So my hypothesis for this lecture is that the emergence of uh, new illnesses and the increase in incidence rates of those that uh, have been described previously are due to our increasing toxic environment. So there's also uh, a role here of, of environment. And this has to do with our immune system and our endocrine system. And also the purposeful development and testing of new weapons of mass destruction. Because some of the infections that we found uh, both in civilians and, and within the military uh, have more to do with the development of new biologic agents than they have to do with the natural emergence of infectious diseases. So what kinds of things are we talking about? Well, you've all heard of bacteria and viruses. Uh, you might not have, probably have heard of, in this context of this meeting, heard of small bacterial microorganisms called mycoplasmas. And I'm going to talk more about them because they're, they're one of the emerging infections that happen to be involved in a variety of different chronic illnesses. But they're not the only thing out there. I'm just concentrating on that because we've happened to have done a lot of uh, research in that area. So chronic infections are often misdiagnosed or not even sought. And because of this, infections are either untreated or inappropriately treated. The, the fact that your GP, your general practitioner, really doesn't know much about these infections. And the reason he doesn't know about these infections is they're really not discussed in medical school any longer. They were 25 years ago, but they're not even taught now. And I know this because I, I taught in medical schools at the University of California and the University of Texas for over 25 years. So I know the curriculum quite well. So what kind of diseases are we talking about? Well, we now know that chronic infections play a very important role in a variety of different diseases. So if we just look at mycoplasmal infections, a small, uh, very tiny pleomorphic bacteria that doesn't really have a cell wall and it gets inside our cells and causes havoc with our metabolism and other aspects of, of the cell. If we just look at a number of diseases, we find this all over the place. For example, in chronic fatigue syndrome, 50 to 60% of patients have this infection. It's probably much higher than that. But the tests are not easy for this type of microorganism. Autism spectrum disorders, uh, different studies that we've done, different parts of the country in, in the US, uh, 58 to 65%, fibromyalgia syndrome, up to 65%, rheumatoid arthritis, about half the patients, Lyme disease, up to 65% have this as a co-infection with the Lyme Borrelia. And we come down to other diseases like uh, ALS, for example, up to 90% of patients have this infection. So these fall in the category, these uh, slow-acting chronic agents in the broad category of uh, non-lethal biologic warfare agents. And why do we put them in that category? Well, we put them in that category because several nations, including the, the US and other nations, have developed these as chronic biological warfare agents. So I'm not putting these on the list because we think they're agents that are developed for uh, WMD. We know they are. In other words, they were researched, developed, and in some case stockpiled as biologic agents. Dr. Nicholson and his wife have put all this research on mycoplasma in the book Project Daylily, an American Biological Warfare Tragedy. The Nicholson's book and other articles discuss how mycoplasma was tested on prisoners in Huntsville, Texas, through government, military, and pharmaceutical contracts in the 1980s. Dr. Nicholson scientifically exposes how mycoplasma is linked to the Gulf War syndrome. The Gulf War syndrome is related to CFS and fibromyalgia with the symptoms of fatigue, muscle pain, gastrointestinal issues, low-grade fevers, short-term memory loss, skin rashes, diarrhea, respiratory issues, and more. Over 16% of veterans in the 1991 Persian Gulf War contracted this illness. Now, the Iraqis admitted uh, that they'd been developing germ warfare agents, but they really didn't find any of these agents in, uh, after the war, so they said. Actually, that's not true. They did find them. And the reason we heard contrary information about that is because 
some of these agents were fully deployed on the front lines, and they didn't want to talk about it so much had, because it really had to do more with the origin of these agents rather than their use. Where did they come from originally? And in fact, uh, many of them came from uh, the United States arsenals supplied to the Iraqis during the Iran-Iraq war to use against uh, the Iranians. And guess what? They got used against our forces during the war. But this wasn't the major source, we think, of infections like the mycoplasma. And when I testified to Congress, I've done that six times. Not that they really, really had any impact, but at least we were there and put it on the record. The number one source we felt for these illnesses were the microbes that they received as contaminants in the vaccines. Now, most military personnel that were deployed received between 20 and 30 uh, vaccines, generally within a two to three day period during deployment, which is very, very wrong to do this. It's a very immunosuppressive to give all those vaccinations uh, within a short period of time. It just immunosuppresses the patient, or in this case, uh, the subject, and makes them very susceptible uh, to either super infection or even if there's a contaminant, infection by the contaminant. And this is the link we feel with um, autistic spectrum disorders, which I'll come back to, the vaccines. And you've probably heard about Camasia, one of the biggest uh, demolition sites immediately after the war, where literally thousands of tons of munitions were blown up by our engineering units. <clears throat> Virtually everyone in those units came down with illness um, within months uh, after that. And we, we helped some of them. Now, we know that uh, weapons, biologic weapons, were in those bunkers. Why do we know that? Because some of the engineers had their own videotape and took their own uh, video cameras down in the bunkers and started filming the munitions. So this is one of the reasons why you haven't heard a lot about, about this story, is that it's, uh, it's got a very bad origin. Now, the multiple vaccines were a real problem during the Gulf War, and this is why people weren't even in the, near the, the conflict, what were deployed to the, what was called the Kuwaiti Theater of Operations, came down with illness. So we had sailors on ships that were in the Gulf that were nowhere near the conflict. We had other forces that were never sent ashore. We had Marines on ships in a feint to uh, confuse the Iraqis uh, that, that they were going to be deployed in a landing operation. A lot of these people came down sick as well, and we have to trace it back to the multiple vaccines. Here is a 2000 study linking vaccination to Gulf War syndrome. In 2006, the paper Immunological Dysfunction Vaccination in Gulf War Illness also considers vaccines the candidate cause for the illness. Jerry Leonard, a Lyme disease victim who wrote How to Make an AIDS Virus, which we have previously discussed, also addresses Gulf War syndrome in his book, AIDS, the Perfect Disease, the Common Threat of Government Experimentation in the Acquired Immunodeficiency in Gulf War Syndrome. The adjuvant squalene in vaccines has also been suspected of contributing to the illness. There are other articles of how mycoplasmas contaminate vaccines. Dr. Nicholson explains the methods of genetic engineering used to weaponize microbes and how they are made heat-resistant with thermoresistant genes, dry-resistant with spore-forming genes, given cellular entry with receptor genes, made to cause cellular death with toxic genes, made immune-resistant with immunosuppressive genes, and massively produced with growth genes. He shows how the HIV surface protein GP120 has been genetically engineered in the mycoplasma to be able to get into cells. This is what we have seen with the coronavirus. What we stumbled across, it was all by accident, by the way, was the fact that the military personnel were being given uh, microorganisms that had a piece of the HIV gene. And this is why some of the soldiers that came back were false positive for HIV virus. They didn't have the HIV virus. They had the part of the envelope gene that was inserted into the mycoplasma. And so there were a lot of false positives among military personnel. And families were really upset about this, but they didn't have AIDS. They were showing no signs and symptoms of AIDS. So we think that uh, part of the HIV genome was placed in the mycoplasma to make it more pathogenic. Now here's what we found. We had all this data for years, but we 
we're kind of hesitant to, to publish it. In fact, we were threatened if we published it, they'd kill us and so on. So I'm showing this publicly for the first time. That, that Gulf War illness patients, uh, we found that 60% um, of the mycoplasma positive patients had the HIV-1 envelope sequences. So we didn't find it in every, every Gulf War illness patient that was positive for mycoplasma. And I don't know the reason for that, except that they were probably testing a number of different things with the vaccine. So there may have been some other sequences that we don't know about. To make HIV virus, you have to have all these genes, Dagpole, envelope, Rev, so on. Otherwise, you can't make an intact virus that's defective. So um, we knew that uh, they didn't have HIV. In fact, they had no evidence that they had HIV. They only had the small part of, not even the complete envelope gene, but probably enough of it to, to produce a part of the GP120 complex. Now, in the Huntsville mystery disease patients, it was called mystery disease at the time because they didn't know what it was, from the 1980s, now we found a completely different scenario. We found some that had the envelope gene, some that had another gene, the pole gene, the polymerase gene, some that had the Rev gene. It looked like they were doing a lot of experiments in the prison system, putting in different genes, checking to see how uh, pathogenic they were and so on in the, in the people in the prison system. So this is evidence showing that what was going on in the 70s and 80s. Experiments were taking place where we were trying different types of weaponization procedures, trying different countermeasures against uh, things like the mycoplasma, making these different uh, hybrids. When the Gulf War broke out, they'd settled on at least mycoplasma fermentans as one of the microorganisms that they wanted to test in a full-scale operation. Dr. Nicholson explains that these illnesses are not the result of a single virus, which reflects the old paradigm, but a variety of pathogens, viruses, fungus, and bacteria, in conjunction with the state of one's immune system. Multiple complex conditions can manifest that overlap various types of illnesses and can change into one another. Well, this goes back to the old versus new thinking about chronic illnesses. I mentioned that we're not dealing with just one event here, such as uh, infection A going to disease A, polio, polio virus causing polio. We're talking about a variety of these different infections, chronic infections, together with different uh, immune competency states of the patients, different genetic backgrounds, different toxic environments, different heavy metals, for example, getting together and causing a complex situation, which we call a syndrome. And the reason we call it a syndrome is because it's not tightly knit signs and symptoms they're very broad, very nonspecific, and so on. So and we have to call it a syndrome. They're really diseases, but we call them syndromes. It needs to be emphasized that multiple pathogens are what create the cytokine storm. Mikovits talks about this as well. Cytokines are immune system proteins responsible for cell signaling, like interferon and interleukin, that when over-released into the blood can create a pathological immune response in which immune cells attack the body instead of the pathogen. We can imagine this happening when the body is fighting multiple infections at once, as some of these pathogens can go stealth and mimic the body and hijack cellular mechanisms. Many experts see that the cytokine storm is what is fueling COVID deaths. Other bacterial particles like mycoplasma are chlamydia, borrelia, and brucella. The causative agent for Lyme disease is Borrelia burgdorferi, named after the bioweapons researcher Willie Burgdorfer, who infected exotic ticks with Borrelia agents before the epidemic, as Jerry Leonard exposes. Researchers have demonstrated extensive ties between the CDC's biodefense unit and the perpetuation of the Lyme disease epidemic. Chlamydia is also a bacterial contaminant found along with strains of mycoplasma. In part eight, we talked about how the sexually transmitted strain of chlamydia could be a bioweapon. There are three strains, Trachomitis, Pneumoniae, and Cytosis. 
The first strain is the sexually transmitted infection, while the other two cause respiratory infections. This paper in the American Society of Microbiology flat out states that Chlamydia cetazi was developed as a bioweapon in the 20th century. This paper is looking at whether that strain of chlamydia evolved into the genital infecting chlamydia trachomitis, as their genome is similar. We know that the evolution of pathogenic viruses occurs through vaccine development. Unsurprisingly, in the 1960s, they created a chlamydia vaccine that was giving people chlamydia. In 2007, Nicholson and others published this study, Evidence for Mycoplasma, Chlamydia Pneumoniae, and Human Herpes Virus 6 Co-Infections in the Blood of Patients with Autistic Spectrum Disorders. He also connects mycoplasma to COVID-19. Mycoplasma can be aerosolized, which means it can be spread through chemtrails. At this point, it is important to bring up viral aerosolization. Judy Mikovits talks about how she and her peers did not know that retroviruses could be aerosolized until 2009. She also claims that she and her lab workers were infected by aerosolized retroviruses. So while in part two we talked about how natural viruses are not aerosolized as to be infectious, modified viruses can be. We have to be careful with terrain theory because it doesn't address viral bioweapons. Here are some studies on aerosolized viruses. This means that COVID-19 could potentially be aerosolized. Here's a 2004 article, Evidence of Airborne Transmission of the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Virus. Here is a comparison of aerosol and surface stability of both the SARS coronavirus strains 1 and 2. There has been an Italian study detecting COVID-19 in air pollution particles that was confirmed by a blind testing at an independent laboratory. While it seems likely that chemtrails are spreading COVID-19 and other retroviruses, other chemicals and heavy metals being aerosolized also contribute to respiratory and other infections. When we discuss aerosolization, it is important to remember that aerosolized dispersers, generators, and chemtrails would dispense the virus in a way greater quantities and spread than person-to-person -person transmission. There is much study on the testing of aerosolized bioterrorism agents. According to Garth Nicholson, the Texan prison experiments with mycoplasma was done with aerosols, and it spread to family members of those tested. I got into a lot of tr trouble in Texas because we reported that in the prison system, that they were using uh, volunteers, prisoners, they were treating them with aerosols of mycoplasma, and they were, getting, they were coming down sick and dying, and then the prison guards got sick, and then their families got sick. In other words, the level of transmission that we saw from the Gulf War was occurring in, in selected prisons in East Texas. There can be a transmissibility of infectious pathogens between people. Weaponized bacteria is more easily transmissible being self-reproducing microorganisms, but modified viruses could be engineered to be infectious and be viable for a short length of time until it finds a host. In regards to COVID-19, Judy Mikovits talks about how there would have to be a significant viral load passed between people like being coughed and sneezed on profusely by a person with symptoms in order to get sick, along with some underlying health problems. But not everyone who is really sick is transmitting the virus either. Mikovits claims that healthy people and asymptomatic people don't have retroviruses in their saliva, and she claims that she never wore masks working for BSL-3 labs. 
Masks do not filter out these tiny pathogens, which are in the nanometer size. Even if larger particulates like saliva are caught by the mask, virons would easily pass through it. In this paper, surgical masks provide a barrier to large particles expelled by the wearer and may help keep spit and mucus generated by the wearer from reaching a patient or medical equipment. However, surgical masks cannot provide certified respiratory protection unless they are also designed, tested, and certified as a respirator. Tiny pathogens wearing should not be enforced on the basis of sovereignty, freedom, and informed consent. Each person has to deal with the consequences for his actions and therefore requires free will to decide. Would you let your neighbor dictate to you what you can do with your body? Government is no different than your neighbor, except a more corrupted version. You own your body. If you did not own your body, then you would be the property of another. You would be a slave. We live in a slavery system because we believe that the government owns our bodies. As Ron Paul said, when we give government the power to make medical decisions for us, we in essence accept that the state owns our bodies. Even the most brainwashed doctor will admit that there are risks to every medical precaution, device, or treatment. In their book, A Case Against Masks, Mikovits and Heck and Lively discuss how decreased oxygen levels and increased carbon dioxide levels that result from breathing through a mask create potential health risks. In this video, Kent Heck and Lively shows how the CO2 levels greatly exceed healthy levels. So, we went over 10,000 parts per million within just 10 breaths. Continuing the topic of contamination, Corvelva is an Italian advocacy group of independent researchers against coerced vaccination that has tested several vaccines and exposed their contaminants. This has been called Vaccine Gate. In GlaxoSmithKline's 6-in-1 vaccine called Infrarex Hexa, Corvelva found 65 chemical contaminants, 8 chemical toxins, 16 free peptide contaminants, and insoluble macromolecules that cannot be recognized by the immune system that are supposed to be soluble proteins. In 2012, a confidential document was leaked exposing 36 infant deaths after taking the vaccine in the two years the vaccine was on the market. And we must keep in mind that only 1-10% to of injuries are reported. A 2018 Corvelva report discusses GlaxoSmithKline's MMR vaccine called Priorix Tetra vaccine. Within the GlaxoSmithKline Priorix Tetra vaccine, proteobacteria, platyhelminths, worms, and nematoda, 10 more ssRNA viruses, microverde, bacteria viruses or phage, and numerous retroviruses including endogenous human and avian retroviruses, avian viruses, human immunodeficiency viruses, into the database turn out to be fragments of HIV and SIV, marine virus, horse infectious anemia virus, lymphoproliferative disease virus, Rouse sarcoma virus, which was one of the first viruses we've talked about in this series, other viruses like alpha endorna virus and hepatitis B virus, yeast virus. So that was all found in the vaccine. That's fucking insane. The Association Moms Across America found high levels of Roundup's glyphosate in several vaccines. The MMR vaccine had 25 times higher levels than the other vaccines. Dr. Stephanie Seneff, senior researcher at MIT's Computer Science, has presented on the vaccine glyphosate autism connection. 
Uh, this is three curves superimposed. Um, and so you can see that all three of these curves kind of coincide. So these three are all working synergistically together. The, I mean, the, these two are working together to cause the autism. The, uh, the vaccines and the glyphosate are, are joint uh, partners in an enterprise to cause autism. A 2017 study in the International Journal of Vaccine and Vaccinations found metallic nanoparticles in vaccines and other metal impurities like stainless steel, iron particles, tungsten, lead, and other inorganic materials from 44 vaccines coming from Italy and France. The scientists said the quantity of foreign bodies detected and in some cases their unusual chemical compositions baffled us. Dr. Montanari and Dr. Gatti's lab was raided by police important to understand is that those particles can induce uh, diseases and also neurological ones. About 15 years ago we started to, to um, analyze vaccines. At the beginning it was the University of Mainz, German University of Mainz, that gave us some samples of vaccines uh, to us because they wanted us to analyze them because those vaccines produced some, uh, some problems mm -hmm. to people who had those particles, those, those vaccines. vaccines injected. So they wanted to know why. And we discovered that both vaccine and the tissue which was, um, which was um, hit by, by, by uh, the particles contained in the vaccines, because we discovered that those vaccines were polluted by particles, those particles were contained equally in the vaccine and in the, in the, in the tissue. So we started to, to analyze vaccines. Uh, an Italian university, the University of Parma, sent us uh, a student for her thesis, mm -hmm. and uh, we analyzed 19 different vaccines with her, finding all of them polluted, polluted by, by micro and nanoparticles. Then we uh, went on analyzing them, and now we analyzed uh, about 30 vaccines with many samples of each vaccine, and we discovered that they were all polluted, all but with a single exception, and that exception was the sole veterinary vaccine, animal vaccine, which we have analyzed. Now we are going to get into the subject of nanoparticles, their use, contamination, and health concerns, while later we will connect these nano-sized synthetic particles to transhumanism, man merging with machine, the fourth industrial revolution, and the AI technocracy. Nanoparticles are not only a eugenics tool, but a tyrannical one, as nanotechnology is an integral part of technological rulership. Nanotechnology is the art and science of creating and manipulating materials on the nanometer scale from virus-sized structures to synthetic atoms. Make no mistake, nanotechnology comes straight from the federal government and was not a natural emerging technology based on the free markets or true medical revelation. Here are all the agencies behind it. And its dark sinister agenda will become very clear towards the end of the series. Nanotechnology has its basis in the military and is inextricable to biowarfare. We're down in that range of scales where we're looking at viruses and antibodies. That's the length scale, the size scale that we want to make things. And we want to deliberately make those things and have them do stuff for us. We would love to build a micro-machine that could ride around inside your body, like the old movie, right? <laughs> you know, Fantastic Voyage. We can, we can manipulate stuff on the atomic scale and we can put it where we want it to be. And we can put it where we want it to be. So that means we can deliberately locate it. So we can deliberately force it to have a certain structure. So we can deliberately force it to have a certain structure. It's all about power and control at the nano scale. Biology is very impressive and intricate. 
clever, but also very suboptimal compared to what we ultimately will be able to engineer with nanotechnology. We are building devices now that are at the nanoscale. This is a design of a robotic red blood cell. Conservative analysis of these respirocytes shows that if you were to replace a portion of your red blood cells with these robotic versions, you could do an Olympic sprint for 15 minutes without taking a breath or sit at the bottom of your pool for four hours. We'll be able to download software against specific pathogens, including ones that have never been seen before, not be subject to autoimmune disorders. And if you look at what will be, in principle, feasible with nanotechnology, we can go far beyond the limitations of our version one bodies. There are many types of nanoparticles, organic and inorganic, and organic-inorganic hybrids, called composites. There is carbon-based, ceramic, metallic, polymeric, lipid-based nanoparticles, hydrogels, silica-based, and more. Nanoparticles can be magnetic, optical, semiconductors, and biosensors. Nanorobotics are robotic and machine-like structures at the nanoscale, being made for drug delivery and monitoring bodily signals through microchips and quantum dots. It's time to get small. Remember how not too long ago computer chip makers were desperate to overcome manufacturing barriers that were keeping them from making chips in the 32 nanometer class? Ah, good times. As IBM just announced, they have successfully produced chips at the 5 nanometer level. A little computer chip 101 here. The smaller you can make the transistors on a computer chip, the more you can cram into a given amount of space, increasing memory density, performance, and speed. Microtechnology is larger than nanotechnology, but has similar applications. Neural dust or smart dust are implantable sensors, one millimeter cubed. But one day soon, we'll put tiny implants the size of a grain of rice inside our bodies. Next to organs, alongside nerves, inside blood vessels, maybe someday even in our brain. This is related to micro-robotics. All these biotechnologies have the larger goal to merge biology with computer and machine. 50 years of development in microelectronics have given us a fantastic array of tiny computer systems. But that is only half the puzzle. A robot also needs to move. And now, researchers have created a brand new type of actuator which can do it, giving the tiny brains some brawn. Swarms of robots so small that they can be injected through a hypodermic syringe, and collected using a pipette. We are getting ahead of ourselves with the technology, but I just wanted to give you a glimpse of where things are headed. Returning back to nanoparticles, according to this article, as of 2007, the National Science Foundation estimated that up to 70 billion worth of nanotechnology-enabled products were sold in the United States annually, and that number is predicted to grow explosively. And then it says that manufacturers are not presently required to report the use of engineered nanoparticles, except for single and multi-walled carbon nanotubes, and that manufacturers are also not required to label products containing engineered nanoparticles. The FDA says that it does not make a categorical judgment that nanotechnology is inherently safe or harmful, but allows nanotechnology to be used unregulated. Nanoparticles like silver, iron oxide, titanium dioxide, silicon dioxide, and zinc oxide are used in food for flavor, color, and preservatives, even though they are known to produce cytotoxicity. This is being done without the public's consent and is a huge crime against humanity.
Recently, some fizzy drinks have become brighter and fruitier looking thanks to nanotechnology. Table salt trickles more evenly than ever thanks to nanoparticles. And some ketchup brands now provide products that stick to your chips without a single drop sticking to the bottle, an achievement nothing short of nanotastic. These amazing little specks can't be seen with the naked eye. They're man-made and tens of thousands of times finer than a human hair. Nano, as it were, is quickly gaining a reputation as the technology of the millennium. Still, not everyone believes it to be purely beneficial. Dr. Wolfgang Kraling has researched how somatic cells respond to foreign nanoparticles. But according to his findings, they can in fact enter the human body either via food intake, respiration or exposure to skin tissue. And once inside the bloodstream, they are readily dispersed. We have found evidence that these particles go on to organs like the liver, spleen and kidneys, all of which combat toxins. However, traces have even been spotted in the heart and brain. Nanoparticles can thus embed themselves in the brain. And scientists have only begun to research the side effects. What is known is that nanoparticles are so resilient that the human body is virtually incapable of breaking them down. And when organs can't defend themselves, they're prone to contracting diseases. It could cause cardiac arrhythmia or alter normal blood clotting functions. More severe scenarios, such as heart attacks or thrombosis, are thus not out of the question. Certain nanoparticles scattered atop the surface of cheese can prevent the contents in a packet of slices from sticking to each other. In car paint, nanotechnology can repel the sun's rays to prevent fading. And the sun-blocking particles used to protect car surfaces are the same ones used in sunscreen. It's becoming increasingly evident that nanoparticles could lead to illness. Nevertheless, there are currently no regulations in place to limit the implementation of this recent and unprecedented technology. Studies have shown that genetic alteration is a potential consequence of nanoparticles in food or nanoengineering of food. This article says that nanoparticles can have serious effects on health when they accumulate in high concentrations in tissues, eventually leading to tissue dysfunction and damage. Nanoparticles like titanium dioxide and zinc oxide are used in sunscreen. Other personal care products and cosmetics use nanoparticles. There are many studies of the potential harmful effects of nanoparticles. Here are just a few. Nanoparticles have been shown to cause oxidative stress. Nanoparticles can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause brain cell damage. The negative impact of nanoparticles on the brain has been researched. This article discusses how molecular, cellular, organ, and immune toxicity is observed with metallic and carbon-based nanoparticles. And then it goes on to say that these hazardous properties do not hinder their use for medical purposes. This article goes into how nanoparticle contaminants are released into the environment that harm microbes, plants, and animals and enable chemical reactions that create toxic chemicals like free radicals. Traffic emissions, metal refineries, wastewater, clothing, and medicine are some of the pathways nanoparticles are released into the environment.
Here is an image of a nanoparticle found in the brain that is likely from air pollution. Besides the pollution from industry, chemtrails is a big way nanoparticles get into the environment. These particles can cause disease and neurodegeneration. But of course they always act as if the problem is the solution to cause more of the problem. They are openly geoengineering with nanoparticles. Dr. Russell Blaylock was a practicing neurosurgeon for 24 years and has published over 40 medical articles in peer-reviewed journals. He warns of aluminum nanoparticles and chemtrails. The main reason I got you on the program was your recent article about the nano-aluminum particles in, um, in the con uh, chemtrails. And I, I think it's just a, so important that people understand what's going on here. So could you tell me what got you interested in this and what, what uh, started you writing this, uh, you know, this recent paper?
which is an excitotoxin that causes uh, cells to die from an excitatory mechanism, kind of complex mechanism, but it, it uh, is a combination of inflammation and excitotoxicity. The reports are coming out now that what they're spraying is nano-sized aluminum, and the idea is the, the old uh, concept of preventing global warming, and they nano-size the aluminum so it'll stay in the upper atmosphere longer, supposedly as a reflective uh, uh, compound, uh, metal. Uh, the problem with that, even from a climatologic uh, description, is that if you make it into cirrus-like clouds rather than reflecting it upward and out of the atmosphere, it reflects the heat downward and actually causes global warming. So, they, uh, you know, you could envision that they're doing its own purpose to make the atmosphere heat up so they can see, see the atmosphere is warming up. But uh, what I'm concerned about mainly is the medical effect, and that's because of this very strong connection between aluminum passing through this pathway into the brain uh, is so strongly connected with Alzheimer's disease uh, and other diseases of memory. Uh, the evidence now from um, the uh, examination by biologists and, and uh, uh, scientists around the world is that the aluminum level in the lakes and streams and trees and, uh, is increasing enormously. Uh, some areas have uh, incredible elevations of aluminum in the, in the groundwater uh, and in the, the vegetation. So uh, if this indeed is happening, uh, we're looking at a, a medical catastrophe uh, that's worldwide. Dr. Lawrence Palevsky has also spoken to a panel about aluminum nanoparticles in vaccines, likely contributing to neurological disease. I'm starting to hear stories from parents, not dozens, not hundreds, but thousands of stories from parents who took a very healthy child into their doctor's office and then found that their child lost much of their health, whether it was their speech, whether it was seizures, whether it was death, whether it was asthma, allergies, eczema, whether it was autism, whether it was learning disabilities, whether it was inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune diseases. And every one of those parents were told it had nothing to do with the vaccine. And this continues today. But yet when I look at the ingredients that are in the vaccines, I have the science to actually explain how these medical problems could be happening in these children. When I was in medical school, we were taught that the body has something called the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is like Fort Knox to the brain. Elements of the bloodstream cannot get into the brain. And those elements include drugs, viruses, and bacteria, among other things that are in the blood. Drug companies were very concerned about being able to develop drugs to get the drugs into the brain. And so they used something called a nanoparticle. A nanoparticle, very small particle, bound to the drug. And they found that if they could put a nanoparticle onto a drug, they could get that drug to go into the brain. And it shows in animal studies that they were able to do this. They then were able to take an emulsifier, which is something that's good with water and fat. It can dissolve in both. And if they added the emulsifier to the nanoparticle bound to the drug, they could increase drug entry into the brain 20-fold. This is right out of animal studies that I found. So you have a drug, you have a nanoparticle, and you have this emulsifier. The vaccines are constructed the same way. You have the vaccine viruses and bacteria, 
that are bound to a nanoparticle called aluminum. And that aluminum is a nanoparticle. And by definition, a nanoparticle has the potential to enter the brain. A chapter in the book, Vaccine Design, is dedicated to nanoparticles as adjuvants. Nanotechnology was used in the HPV vaccine, a vaccine with horrific adverse reactions that we discussed in Part 8. Nanoparticles are now openly being put in vaccines. Here is a patent for vaccine nanotechnology by MIT in 2017. This 2019 article uses the term nanovaccinology, claiming that nanoparticles used as vehicles of vaccine components are able to increase host immune response. And that's because they are more harmful. The types of nanoparticles being used as synthetic delivery systems in the range of 20 to 200 nanometers are viral-like particles, self-assembled proteins, micelles, lymposomes, inorganic nanoparticles, and polymers. Both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna's COVID-19 vaccines openly use nanotechnology. This is the ingredients for the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. I'd like to draw your attention to these couple of things, the lipid, lipid elk. They are the lipid nanoparticles that carry and protect the mRNA from degradation. Either if we want to deliver oligonucleotides such as DNA, the plasmid DNA, or the mRNA, as mentioned uh, uh, before by Christine, uh, uh, done by Moderna, BioNTech, for the DNAs with Canzino and some other companies, also uh, peptides directly, we need to, uh, to protect them. So in this case, we need to protect them from degradation in, in the blood. We need to protect them from RNAs, DNAs, and so on. So we use the nanoparticles for packaging them. And at the same time, in many of the cases, we want to deliver them together with other components that will activate the immune system, such as different adjuvants that are TLR activators. The technology of DNA and RNA vaccines using nanoparticles began with DARPA and has had much funding from Bill Gates. The COVID-19 PCR test uses a nasal pharyngeal swab, but there is much suspicion that they are in fact a form of vaccination. An article came out saying, yes, they can vaccinate us through nasal test swabs and target the brain. Dr. Lorraine Day, former ortho... Yes, just when it was starting to get good, huh? And uh, you can go watch more of that uh, from Jenna and her series on uh, bio. Let's get it. Let's get it right. There's quite a few words there. Tyranny and eugenics through public health, bioterrorism, and vaccines, part nine. And I would suggest starting at the beginning and going all the way through. And uh, you know, she's going to come out with more. And uh, I was glad we were able to feature that. I felt like today I was really able to kind of draw a few loops that I'd been kind of panning out with the first five episodes of BioSciWar. And I will continue to produce episodes of the BioSciWar as uh, we're living in the BioSciWar. So it's not that hard to, per to curate the content as I'm going through and doing the research. As I said, I've got a few new books uh, that showed up, uh, including Gene Wars and Operation Paperclip. And we'll be going in and uh, linking that up as well as hopefully getting some interviews on board. I also have uh, 
Creature of Control episodes that are coming up. Um, the reintroduction to the creature, a slide deck prepared with that one. And we'll be going through and more of the psychological aspects of the BioSci War. So the, today's been BioSci War, the TikTok BioOp, the TikTokerations, TikTokeration uh, in the BioSci War. So thanks for tuning in to the TylerBlur.com live stream. Uh, share this out to your friends and family who may be uh, interested in going through this sort of material. I appreciate any feedback. I appreciate the people who watch live, and I appreciate the people who download the podcasts and uh, check out the alternative platforms off of the YouTube uh, library, BitChute and Float being the main places that I mirror the content as well. So again, guys, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you later uh, next week perhaps, and if not, then the week after that, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks.